Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the project accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself in the past, suffering from partial amnesia and facing a mere image that was not his own. Fortunately, contact with his own time was maintained through brainwave transmissions with Al, the project observer, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Dr. Beckett can see and hear. Trapped in the past, Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, putting things right that once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. Listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 21, Another Mother. Now it's nobody's shirt. Now it's just a, t- a torn rag. Where's my mommy? She's in front of you. That's not my mommy, that's a man. It's supposed to go in the yucky shirt. This is my favorite shirt. This is cutting edge stuff. It's yucky. Oh, how can she see me? Animals and kids. What if you say? They're pure of heart. You know you can't lie to a kid. They see right through you. They see the real you. Okay, Al. What are we really here to do? But sometime in the next 24 hours, Kevin runs away from home and... And? He vanishes off the face of the earth. Six months later, his bloodied clothes were found in an abandoned van. They never found his body, Sam. And his mother never allowed the case to be closed. Hello and welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And today we are talking about Season 2, Episode 13 of Quantum Leap, Another Mother. And we have a great show today. Yeah, we do. We are so honored to have, as a guest on our show, the composer of most of Quantum Leap, the Emmy Award winning, Velton Ray Bunch. That's really awesome. I looked up the things that he's done, and that's it's so cool that he's on our show. I'm curious to think what his thoughts are when they change the music like instead of playing the actual song they played elevator music i'm curious to see what he has to say about that i did ask him about that so stay tuned music is such a big part of quantum leap i mean when you think of quantum leap you can't help but think of all the music and he was responsible for creating so many of the fan favorite pieces from some of our favorite episodes so it was really a treat for me to talk to him and uh, that's coming up later in the show sam is a mommy Yeah, he is. This is a really cool perspective that he leaped into because he doesn't have any kids that we know of yet. I don't know. That he knows of. That he or (laughs) I know of. (laughs) But um, it was nice to get that parenting feel. I mean, it was kind of a rough thing to watch being a parent with the kidnapping and stuff. But man, he kicked some butt. So this is it was a good episode. 
I enjoyed it. I liked it. It was nice for me because I was alive in the 80s, so I could very much identify with this episode, and I enjoyed all the 80s references, like to Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws. Were you a Demons and Dragons fan? No. <laughs> or Dungeons and Dragons, I yeah. should say. I had never heard of Demons and Dragons, and uh, I don't think anyone else has either. I think they were talking about Dungeons and Dragons, probably, but it looks to me like they couldn't get the rights, so they had to have uh, Dean Stockwell loop in Demons and Dragons. He should have said Demons and Dragons or whatever it's called. Like, he should have said something like that. So it's like, he didn't remember what it was called, but it was still the other thing. Yeah, there's uh, several things in the episode that look like they were supposed to be something, but maybe there was something else. Because, like, something really big in the 80s was Cabbage Patch Kids. So I think Troyan's little doll, or should I call her Teresa? <laughs> <laughs> I think Teresa's little doll was supposed to be maybe a Cabbage Patch Kid, because that would place it more in the 80s. But maybe, again, they couldn't get the rights for some reason or another. Or maybe it was just too much of a hassle to get. I mean, when you're in a, like a period piece show, maybe mm-hmm. it's too much of a hassle to get the rights for every little detail for the episode, you know? Yeah. But I think they did really good. I mean, to me, this episode definitely screamed 80s. In every way, I think. And I think that's one of the reasons I enjoyed it. Yeah. And I like the little things in the background sometimes. Like when they were outside playing ping pong. In the background, you could see like bounce sheets and Washington Apple boxes. I just thought that that was cool because it seemed more real and very retro, like true to the 80s products. Right. It wasn't fake like TV sets normally are. (laughs) Like the bounce sheets were definitely not the bounce sheets we have today. They might have been from the 90s though. Hmm. Right, which I'm sure this one wasn't too hard to pull off because it was just 10 years in the past when it was filmed. I like the actors in this episode. I know Michael Stoyanov from Blossom. That was nice to see him. And I think he did really good in the episode because usually Sam has a female co-star for each episode they focus on. But this one, most of the episode was carried by the character of Kevin. And I thought he did really good. I really liked their relationship. Like in the beginning of the episode when he was impersonating Yoda and he was kind of poking fun at his mom but it was not in a mean way and he just had a good personality it was funny and sam kind of didn't know how to react at first he was just like go to school and get out of here but you could tell that kevin was a good kid i mean he was funny and goofy but he was a good kid so i liked that whole interaction and i have to say i never fought with my brothers like that i mean we had our fights over toys and stuff like that like the shirt thing i could see happening but the way they spoke to each other in the whole episode that was pretty rough they were what four years different i don't remember talking to my brother like that either one of them and they were pretty nasty to each other most of the episode I think a little bit of that had to do with everybody was kind of stressed out because there was no dad in the picture. He had left because of a midlife crisis. So she was a single mom raising the three kids and a dog. And it looked very stressful. So I think they were all dealing with the situation in their own way. And that might have been part of it. Maybe. Also, maybe they just dressed up the drama for TV a little bit. But yeah, I just don't remember. And even Sam said, I think he remembers having spats with his brother and sister, but his parents never let it get too bad, I guess. I, I don't know. I think Sam did good as a mom, though. I think he made a great mom. And uh, I'm sure we have a lot more to talk about after the episode recap. This is season two, episode 13, Another Mother. Original broadcast date, January 10th, 1990. Written by Deborah Pratt and directed by Joseph L. Scanlon. (laughs) 
Sam leaps into a suburban kitchen, wearing a woman's shirt and pants, to the sound of food cooking on a stove, a radio, a barking dog, and two children arguing over a queen t-shirt. Meanwhile, a smaller girl tugging at the bottom of Sam's shirt tells him that the dog, Wookie, ate the head off of her doll, much to Sam's dismay as he realizes he is a mother. It's September 30th, 1981, and Sam has leapt into Linda Bruckner, a divorced mother of three living in Scottsdale, Arizona. The youngest girl, Teresa, asks where her mother is, and Sam realizes that she can see him and not Linda. Teresa hides behind Kevin and says she wants her mommy, gets scared, and runs out of the living room and Sam asks Susan to go and check on her. Susan has convinced Teresa to come out and take another look, but Teresa still insists that their mother is a man, and so is the guy in the yucky shirt. Sam realizes that Teresa can also see Al, who has just appeared. Kevin and Susan are more confused than ever, and Teresa runs out of the room once more. After Kevin has gone, Al tells Sam that according to Ziggy, children under five exist in a natural alpha state, which is why Teresa can see them. Teresa only sees the truth, which is a problem because the truth is that her mother is gone. Teresa asks Sam and Al where her mother is. Al kneels down and tells her that her mother had to go away for a while, but will be back soon. Sam introduces himself and Al to Teresa and tells her that everyone is going to pretend that Sam is her mother for the next couple of days. She asks Al if he and Sam are angels, to which Al says yes, and Sam simultaneously says no. Al offers to prove that he and Sam are angels by holding his hand out for Teresa to touch. Her hand goes right through Al's and she delightedly runs back and forth through him with a giggle. After Teresa leaves the room, Sam asks Al what he is really there to do. He didn't want to say it in front of Teresa, but sometime in the next 24 hours, Kevin is going to run away from home and disappear without a trace. Six months from now, his bloody clothes are going to be found in an abandoned van and Linda will never allow the case to be closed. Meanwhile, a van is seen crossing the state line into Arizona. Later, Sam has to figure out why his 15-year-old son is going to run away. He realizes that he can't follow Kevin around all day, but Al can. At the Indian Grove High School, Kevin and some other students are admiring and joking about one of the female students. Al is nearby listening in on the conversation. One of the boys suggests that Kevin should try and score with Jackie Arnett, a pretty girl who is sitting across the quad and reading a textbook. Kevin tells them that Jackie isn't his type. The other boys suggest that Jackie has had a lot of encounters with boys at their school, which Kevin quickly denies. They make fun of him for defending her, but he insists that Jackie isn't like that, which impresses Al. The other boys announce a challenge, daring Kevin to score with Jackie, but Al senses a setup and returns to Sam. Back at the house, Sam tells Al that he's not going to help a 15-year-old learn how to seduce a girl, but Al argues that Sam doesn't have a choice, He tells Sam that Kevin is genuinely interested in Jackie, but that his friends are going to set him up somehow, which will cause Kevin to run away. Sam says he is not going to encourage Kevin to have sexual intercourse. Teresa, who has returned from her bedroom, asks Sam and Al what sexual intercourse is, though she has trouble pronouncing the words. Sam suggests to Al that maybe they can teach Kevin about romance instead. Later, Sam returns home with the three kids. Over a game of ping pong, Sam says he can tell something is wrong, Kevin says it's just guy stuff, and Sam tells him he might know more about girls than Kevin thinks. Kevin is becoming uncomfortable with the conversation, but before Sam can continue, Teresa appears covered in finger paint, as is Wookie. Sam takes Teresa back into the house to clean her up. On a road leading into Scottsdale, the van is seen following a school bus. 
Two students get off of the bus, but before the two men in the van can approach them, a car pulls over and the students get in. That evening at Jackie's house, Kevin's school friends are trying to convince Jackie to go along with their plan to mess with Kevin. Jackie thinks it sounds mean, but they assure her that Kevin will find it funny. Jackie reluctantly agrees to go along with their scheme later that night. Susan is in the living room watching Magnum P.I. when Kevin comes in. He jokes about what Susan sees in Tom Selleck, then awkwardly asks her what a boy who likes her would have to do to get her attention. Susan says that she's 11 and doesn't have to deal with that stuff, but tells him that a boy who likes her wouldn't be the school joke. Kevin angrily turns off the TV and leaves the room, and Susan leaves to go and watch TV at her friend's house next door. Kevin is about to leave too when Sam walks in carrying Teresa, who has just had a bath. Kevin says he is going out with friends. Sam, knowing what's going to happen to Kevin, refuses to let him out of the house. Kevin angrily tells Sam he is going to his room. Upstairs, Kevin climbs out of his bedroom window, having left his stereo on to cover his escape. He drops to the ground and rides away on his bicycle. The van, which was parked down the street, starts moving and follows Kevin. Sam is trying to put Teresa to bed, but Teresa wants him to sing her a lullaby like her mother does. Al appears and sits down to sing to Teresa while Sam goes to Kevin's room to turn off the stereo. Al sings the inchworm to Teresa and smiles as she drifts off to sleep. Sam interrupts and tells Al that Kevin has snuck out and blames himself for not letting Kevin leave the house. Al looks up Jackie's address on the hand link so Sam can go and find Kevin. At Jackie's house, Kevin and Jackie are sitting together on her couch. Kevin nervously tells her that it was nice of her to invite him over. Jackie tells him that he doesn't have to be nice to her or talk to her because if he wants to, they can just get started. He wants to know why Jackie is doing this and asks her if she even likes him. Jackie asks him if it matters. Kevin says that it matters to him. Jackie tells him to take his clothes off while she puts another song on the stereo. Jackie puts on a romantic song then lies down on the floor near the fireplace, inviting Kevin to join her as he takes off his shirt. The two of them start kissing, but Kevin breaks off the kiss, telling her he doesn't know what to do. Jackie asks Kevin if he is a virgin, and Kevin reluctantly admits that he is. As soon as he says this, his friends burst in, laughing at Kevin's admission. Jackie also laughs at first, but stops when she sees his hurt expression. Humiliated, Kevin runs out of the house and rides away on his bike while the other boys continue to laugh. Outside, Kevin passes the van on his bike, and it starts moving again to follow him. Sam enters the house, and Jackie tells him that Kevin rode off on his bike. Al appears, and Sam asks him where Kevin has gone. He tells him where Kevin's bike was found, and Sam leaves to try and catch up to Kevin before he disappears. The two men in the van are driving away from Scottsdale, and Kevin is now bound and gagged in the back of the van, trying to break free. Sam and Al are in Linda's station wagon. Al tracks Kevin down and tells Sam he's in a vehicle three kilometers ahead of them. Sam asks Al to go and check on Kevin. Al responds that he won't be able to do anything, but agrees to go. Al appears in the back of the van and is relieved to find Kevin still alive. He tells Kevin to hang in there. One of the men in the front of the van starts crawling menacingly towards Kevin. Sam is right behind them now and starts honking his horn. Sam tries to pull up alongside the van, but he has to swerve back to avoid an oncoming truck. He tries again and this time manages to run the van off the road. The driver of the van checks his rearview mirror and smiles as he sees a reflection of Linda getting out of the car. Sam approaches the van, but as the driver gets out, the other man grabs Sam's arms, pinning them behind his back. The driver rips open Sam's blouse, but Sam fights out of the other man's grip, knocking the two men down with experienced fighting moves. 
Sam is stunned to discover he knows how to fight, and Al tells him he knows judo, karate, muay thai, and taekwondo. One of the men pulls a knife and gets back up, but Sam takes him out with a roundhouse kick. With the two men unconscious, Sam quickly opens the van and rescues Kevin. He is surprised to see his mom and tells Sam that he wasn't running away. Sam says that he knows, and the two of them embrace. The next morning, Susan gets up from breakfast to go to school. She tells Kevin that although she picks on him sometimes, she's glad he's okay. After Susan leaves, Sam joins Kevin at the table and says he has a pretty good idea of what happened at Jackie's house the night before. Kevin is reluctant to talk to Sam about it, especially when Sam brings up the word sex. He tells Sam that his friends found out he's a virgin and now they're going to tell everyone at school. Sam tells him that he was a virgin at 16 and that there's no special age where anyone is supposed to lose their virginity. He explains that there should be a special reason, however. Being in love with someone is the best reason to make love. Kevin says that he never thought about it that way. Sam tells Kevin he should just give himself some time. Kevin agrees, then gets up to go to school. After Kevin leaves, Al, who has been listening in, compliments Sam on how he handled the conversation. Sam asks Al why he hasn't left yet. Al jokes that it's because he has been having so much fun with Teresa. At school, Kevin's friends look on in amusement as Kevin cautiously enters the cafeteria. He passes Jackie, who quickly gets up to talk to him. She apologizes, but says she'd really like to be his date to the Mardi Gras. Kevin smiles at her, and the two of them walk together. Kevin's friends continue to ridicule Kevin for being a virgin, and Jackie responds by saying, you've got to be kidding me, and giving Kevin a lengthy kiss in the middle of the cafeteria, drawing exclamations and applause from the other students. Sam and Al are in Teresa's room, and Al is using the hand link to show Teresa pictures of dinosaurs so she can guess their names. Al takes this in for a moment, then gently tells Teresa that her mother is coming back. She asks Al if he can stay, and he tells her that he can't. She says she doesn't want him to go. Al says he doesn't want to go either, but he promises to come back someday. He puts his hand up, and Teresa puts her hand through his one more time. From across the room, Sam smiles at the two of them, and leaps. And that episode recap was from Phil. That's Phil's first one for us. Yeah, thanks, Phil. One of the first things I noticed in this episode was seatbelts. I know, right? Do you think uh, Sam finally realized it's a smart idea to use seatbelts? Or do you think a little bit of Linda Bruckner's personality got in there and she always wears her seatbelt? I, I don't know. I really don't. I, the, the whole seatbelt thing baffles me. But now, hey, we have seatbelts. Yeah. So, one. <laughs> I really liked this episode. It was a good episode. It was a little weird at the beginning. It started playing automatically after Animal Frat on Netflix. And I heard the male voiceover instead of Deborah Pratt's Saga Cell. It was some random guy. And I was like, wait, what? what's going on? I didn't know what that was about. I figured they were going to explain it. Like, I figured something changed in the future. Like it was an alternate reality opening or something? Yeah, I don't know. But they never even touched on it. So I don't know what happened there. I guess they tried it. And then in the next episode's back to Deborah Pratt, right? Right. Weird. In this episode, they also try a little something else. I don't know if you noticed it, but when Al flashed in and flashed out, he got all sparkly. Hmm. I actually didn't notice that. I noticed the one time that they didn't play a sound for him, but I guess he was just hanging out at the house with Teresa. So, like, he was already there. In the hidden part of the breakfast nook. 
Right. But that I did notice the sparkles. Hmm. Really? And I how many times did I watch that episode? <laughs> Four or five at least. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, they did this thing where when Al flashed out there was like little sparkles in the air. Oh, after. when he when he flashed out, like when he left. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you meant when he came in. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, sparklies in the air. Sparklies. I like sparklies. It looked like a little bit of a transporter effect. Well, I mean, with this kind of show where you're just starting to have all these special effects available, you try everything and see what works, right? So they're just trying something new. Yeah. It wasn't my thing. I didn't like it. I'm glad they didn't continue it. And it would seem like a waste of money because they already established that he just blinks out kind of like in Looper. Yeah, I didn't think it was necessary, but to me, it didn't take away from anything either. Like, it didn't take away from the story. For me, it was like a really intense part of the episode where, you know, Kevin's about to be abducted or even when Kevin is all tied up with duct tape in the back of a van and Al sparkles in. The two aren't really in the same vein. It seems like the sparkly thing is fun, whereas they're in an intense life or death situation. Yeah, it kind of was a serious episode. Well, it had to do with child abduction and possibly child molestation and killing. And it's not good. Bloody clothes in a van. When I saw that Sam was going to be a mom, that's so not where I thought this episode was going. But from the previews, I'm pretty misled. There's a lot of shows where the preview tells you everything that's going to happen in the next episode. But I'm glad that they don't because I I was pretty surprised. I thought this was going to be a fun one. Like I thought he was going to just say, wow, it's tough being a mom. And that was going to be the episode. He was going to have to help Kevin win his swim meet. I really didn't think there was going to be a whole nother layer to it. So I was kind of shocked when two creepy guys in a van are lingering in the background of this episode. And to find out that Kevin disappears off the face of the earth and his mom never lets it go i mean i could i wouldn't ever let it go either that's really scary and it's awesome that sam changes the fate and saves kevin right because at the end of this episode kevin was either i guess locked up forever or dead and disposed of to where no one could find him right like sam made such a big difference in this episode i mean some episodes it's like remember that little mini leap where he saved a cat from a tree it's crazy that it ranges so far as helping a boxer win a boxing match to saving someone's life and kevin gets to go on living a long life after that and who knows how many lives and things he'll touch and change being alive now as a mom Linda doesn't have to go through that now. He changed so much and helped everybody in this episode, which is great. And he hopefully called the cops on those guys because so they don't do it again. Well, this is a question I have maybe lingering about this episode. While those guys are laying on the ground, okay, now what? Are they going to get up and go, well, shucks, let's try again? Probably. So ah, what happens there? See, I'm... Assuming in my perfect world, Sam goes back home and calls the cops and says, there's two guys and on the side of the road, they had my kid. Hopefully go get them. They're in a van. And then like the news reporter team comes out and interviews her because she saved her son from these bandits. And that's like <laughs> the the picture I have in my head of how the it would really end. Me, I was just like, oh, they're going to get another kid. See, but that would really be sad. Yeah. Mine's happier. (laughs) Well, hopefully. (laughs) Or, you know, they said, hey, let's not mess with kids anymore because their moms know Muay Thai, Taekwondo, Karate. I don't know. I think that they've probably had so many other kids that they've attacked because obviously this wasn't their first one, right? I don't know. They drove in from a long ways away. 
That's just strange. I'm going to see with all the tumbleweeds. Yeah, they're at the bus stop, I guess, ready to abduct some little girls right off the school bus next to the tumbleweed factory. <laughs> yeah, I was like, really? The tumbleweeds don't make the scene any better. They don't add to that scene at all. I wish they hadn't of shown the guys in the van at that point yet, because up until that point, they just showed the van driving. And it's much more scarier when you don't know what's in it. It's kind of like the shark and Jaws. Until you see them, you're more scared of them. Yeah, and it seemed like the front windows were tinted on that first shot of the van while they were driving. It did make it really scary. But once you saw there were just a couple of goobers, it was just like, you know, it's kind of weird. Yeah, and they were really gross. I think they were cast well. Can we talk about the fact that the creepy one who was licking his lips at Sam ripped open Sam's shirt and Sam didn't fix it while he's saving his son? Well, uh, modesty is not as important as saving a life, I think. Yeah, but like Sam personally didn't have a bra on. So did Linda have a bra on? I don't think Linda had a bra on. I think Sam forgot to put his bra on that day. (laughs) Because I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here and say that... My thought is, this is my thought, (laughs) that he's amazing in self-defense techniques and they ripped his blouse open. He didn't do it. But that's a great form of distraction for these two guys because they're going to be looking at some boobs while he's kicking their butt. But then you go save your son with your boobs hanging out. Not that I would sit there and button it back up, but like at least pinch it closed. Well, they weren't (laughs) boobs. They were just an aura of boobs. They're still the mom aura of boobs to Kevin. (laughs) At the end, he was closing his blouse and holding it closed. But I'm sure being a man most of your life... And only being a, <laughs> being a man most of your life. A woman, you know, a few days here and there, you, you don't realize that kind of stuff. And it's his body, so he's not feeling his boobs jostle around. I don't know why I was thinking about that, but that's all I That thought. being said, when they ripped open his blouse, I was thinking, wow, this should be on Showtime because they shouldn't show that kind of thing. And I'm like, wait, that's Scott Bakula's chest. Total sexism there, but we're not even going to go into that. Also in that part of the episode, this is something you noticed that I didn't notice. So I think the second time you clued me in on this, when Sam hugs Kevin after the day is saved, Kevin gives this crazy look to his mom like, that's weird. I just got a hug from a man, but my mom's right there. Yeah, or like someone's chest hair was just tickling my face that I don't know who it was. Like, I don't know. It was What weird... just happened? Yeah. But, but further proof of what everybody is saying is that it's Sam's body. Maybe he was like, Mom, why are your boobs hanging out? Could be. Like, Mom, thank you for saving my life, but why are your boobs on my face? <laughs> and it's no longer a family show. <laughs> we can say boobs. <laughs> I don't know, the lingering look that he gave his mom, like something weird just happened. Personally, I think it was just a stronger hug than he would expect from his mother. Like, when did you get muscles, mom? (laughs) Why are your shoulders so big? I loved his explanation, Girl Scouts. (laughs) Kevin was like, what? One of my favorite parts of this episode was Troy and Belisario playing Teresa. Every time she was on screen, I was like, oh, she's so cute. Oh, yeah, she was really cute. And I loved her lines. She did so good. What was it? Secular yeah. undercourse? What is secular undercourse? I, I don't know. I don't think that's a thing. It's something that's separate and beneath course. I don't know. But uh, she did a really great job in this episode. She did really good. I'm assuming they just kind of told her what to say and she said it. She looked at the right things. Sometimes kid actors look off screen or they look around or they stare at something weird. But she did really good. She looked at whoever she was supposed to be looking at and where she was supposed to be looking at. I loved the relationship between Al and Teresa and 
probably a lot of that had to do with maybe a relationship between Dean Stockwell and Troyan. Oh, I'm sure, because she was probably hanging out on the set all the time, you know? Being four, she's not in school yet, so either she had a nanny and was at home, or she probably just hung out with everybody all the time. And so I'm sure she was really close to most of the casting crew. There are a few parts in Quantum Leap where Dean Stockwell really shows, I don't know, like a different side of him, a different personality, a a different window into him. Uh, One was when he was talking about his sister. And uh, there are parts coming up, which, you know, will tear your heart out. But the quiet moments that he spent with Troyan in those few scenes, I mean, you can really feel it. It was really, really good. And Sam wasn't even as close to Teresa as... Al was like at the end when Al had the dinosaurs and Sam's like, she's too young for that. Al kind of looked at Sam like, you don't know. like (laughs) She's really smart. Shut up. Like he gave him this look like, shh. And then she said all the dinosaur names, which was really cool. Uh, Which ones were they? Uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. Which would be a sharp tooth. A Stegosaurus and a Diplodocus. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I believe dinosaurs really existed. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm going to probably agree with you on that one. All right. Don't mean to get too political, but (laughs) I believe in dinosaurs. Now, do you believe that Steven Spielberg is killing dinosaurs? Can you believe he's going around, (laughs) what, 65 million years ago, killing dinosaurs and posting it on Facebook? People. People are funny. (sighs) Is funny the word? I Yeah, I don't know. There really isn't. <laughs> if you guys don't know what we're talking about, there is a picture that is viral on the social media sites right now of Steven Spielberg sitting next to a... Triceratops, I think. Right. A three a, horn. A dead triceratops. And people are saying how horrible hunters are for going into their homes and killing them. I'm assuming this is a follow-up to the teenage cheerleader chick who's going around Africa killing animals. But the fact that people don't recognize that, one, it's a dinosaur, (laughs) (laughs) and two, that it's Steven Spielberg, I thought they were just being sarcastic at first. (laughs) I really did. But then the comments are just so bad. So for the record, Steven Spielberg is not going around killing living dinosaurs. Right. That was definitely a prop from his movie. Jurassic Park. Right. Uh, Well, that should be (laughs) a compliment to the special effects people that made those dinosaurs. Yeah, good job, guys. (laughs) But who doesn't know dinosaurs are extinct? (laughs) Maybe there really is a Jurassic Park island. (laughs) And we just don't know about it. Exactly. And Steven Spielberg's going around killing those poor animals. He's going to get a bad rap. I'm sure he's going to get asked about that in interviews coming up. You know, I bet you he already knows and is like, really, guys? (laughs) Really? (laughs) But I loved seeing dinosaurs in this episode, and it's something that kids love. Yeah, and it was cool that the handlink had little pop-up dinosaurs. I mean, they weren't great quality, but they were still pretty cool. It looked very holographic. Yeah. The other effects as far as their scenes with her hand going through his color changing wasn't that great but for the time i guess yeah when she walked through him that was probably the worst effect i think it did look good other than the color the whole like screen color changed he was wearing like a bright green shirt yeah and it went down to like a dull maybe greenish gray yeah it's like the screen turned grayish blue almost like the whole shot I'm sure it was difficult. But I'm sure now seeing it in high def, it doesn't really help the cause. I'm kind of spoiled right now with the Star Trek The Next Generation remastered Blu-rays where they went in and redid a lot of the effects where they used the actual original 
effects, but they went in and relayered them and made sure they were okay. And they fixed a little bit of things here and there. I'm guessing that they just took the final film product for the high def shows we're watching on Netflix right now. They just took the final film and just scanned it and put it out as is because there's not really any retouching or redoing that I've noticed. Well, hopefully someday they do a Blu-ray and redo stuff. That's the hope, right? If anybody out there in that has any kind of pull in this that's listening. <laughs> somebody at NBC, Universal, somebody who owns the home video rights. Somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. Yes. It's time, <laughs> it's time to remaster it, I think. Yeah. But it doesn't take away from the story, really. Not at all. But for a couple seconds, you're like, I wish. I wish that looked better. Right. Yeah. But it didn't take away from how adorable their little relationship was. And I felt for Al because I feel like he should be a dad now. Well, he did have that one line when he was trying to communicate to Sam. I think he said something like, you know, I never really wanted to have kids. But and that's when Sam interrupted him and said, Kevin's gone. So maybe he's having a little change of heart because he's a womanizer and he's with woman after woman after woman and no kids that we know of. Well, technically, it's not too late for him to have kids. No, not at all. Charlie Chaplin had kids when he was well into his 90s. Yeah, but he couldn't hold them. (laughs) I know I mentioned earlier, but Michael Stoyanov, he did a great job. I did notice in this episode they did that thing again where they make the high school students 28 years old for some reason. Still to this day. Why is that? I guess it's just easier than working with minors, but you would think just get 18-year-old kids. Yeah, well, it's funny because now I'm I'm 25 and the people that are in high school are sometimes older than me, like the actors <laughs> that play. Yeah, you're still too young to be a high school student in well, a television show. I'm like the same age as everybody on Glee and sometimes younger than people that are on Glee. I mean, Corey Montaith, they were talking about him passing away at the age of 30. He had just graduated. It's like a thing Glee. in Hollywood. It really is. Well, I guess they have to keep that Hollywood thing going. They get the high schoolers to play middle schoolers, the middle schoolers to play elementary school kids. Is that maybe that's how it works? I have no idea. It just confuses me. <laughs> I bet you Susan was probably high school age. Probably but playing younger. <laughs> playing an 11 year old. She did a great job. I really love that actress. Her name's Olivia Burnett. And she's really good. She shows up again in Quantum Leap as a major character. I'm not going to tell you, Heather, what it is. I'm sure the listeners, a lot of them, know who she plays and how important she is in the show. But I really like her. Yeah, I feel like I know her from somewhere, but I looked her up on IMDb and I don't remember. I mean, unless I remember her from Planes, Trains and Automobiles. My memory's not so great from the <laughs> 90s, so... <laughs> her voice, I liked her voice in this episode. It was kind of cracky. Uh, just the way her voice sounded, it reminded me of uh, Lorraine Baines McFly from Back to the Future Part 2, where she's Marty's mom in an alternate 1985. Yeah, I can see that. I, I did like her voice, though. I really liked her. I liked how she played her character, and though she was kind of mean to her brother, I liked the ending where she was like, sorry, I treat you like a turkey. She just has the X factor of uh, when you see an actress and you know they have it. You don't really know what it is, but they have it. Even at the end of the episode when she was getting up from breakfast, I was like, she's doing that so good. (laughs) She stands up so well. (laughs) Just everything that she did was great. I'm looking forward to seeing her again in a future episode. She was definitely into Magnum P.I. Well, you got to think, in this reality of Quantum Leap, there is no Quantum Leap, so there's no Scott Bakula. So who's the best looking guy there is? And I guess Magnum P.I. That was a big thing back then too, right? Everybody watched Magnum. I remember watching it as a kid. I don't really remember getting into it because I think it was just a little bit before my time. So Mm -hmm. it was on and I watched it, but I wasn't into it. 
you would have been like six. Right. So you wouldn't really have been into It was on this. for five more years after that, eight more years, they said, in yeah. this episode. But for you to go back and rewatch it all, I understand that. I might at some point, because it is Donald P. Belisario, so who knows? There might be some time travel in there. That'd be pretty sweet. I know it has something to do with something, and there's a surprise something, but I've never found out what that thing is, just in case I do watch it. I'm surprised when you don't get spoiled by shows like that. Like, I haven't been spoiled by Quantum Leap yet. Hopefully by the time we don't go to Dragon Con, I won't be spoiled by Quantum Leap. But up until this point, I haven't been spoiled by the ending of the show. At the time of this recording, there are several shows that I'm watching that I won't tell people I'm watching right now just because I don't want to get spoiled. There's a guy I work with that I actually had to yell at him because he loves spoilers. He wants to know the ending. He's the read the back page of the book, watch the last episode without watching the whole season. That's just who he is. And he's like, tell me what happens. I don't mind. And I'm like, really? I don't see the point. Well, I I think I was somewhere in between there before. Like if I got spoiled, I was like, "Eh, eh, okay. But now you've somehow, you've gotten me into not wanting to be spoiled. I just think it's more enjoyable because there's a mystery. And if you know who did it, just, just for an example, not as fun. But you don't get as emotionally involved, which can be good, but can be bad because then you don't get as emotionally involved. I mean, it would be cool to watch it twice. So then like you watch the end and then you go back and you're like, oh, hey, they foreshadowed that. I don't I've never rewatched shows until I met you. And when we rewatched stuff, I was like, hey, they knew that was going to happen and they did little clues. And so I'm sure that that's probably playing in now when you're watching Quantum Leap. If I don't know a little bit like you you recognize Susan from an upcoming episode and you probably didn't know the first time around that she was in two episodes. Right. She was just the little sister. In this episode, Another Mother, but she wasn't the other character. Right. And with Jimmy, I'm sure it wasn't as profound of an episode until later when you watch, what is it, Shock Theater that he's in. And the fifth season episode, Deliver Us from Evil. Yeah. See, I mean, I don't know the significance of that yet, but I know that there's something coming up. Right. Because I get super excited. It's nice to watch a show again. Like, I'm sure maybe maybe one day we'll rewatch it again. And we'll be like, hey, remember this one part? <laughs> so past Heather right now, how do you think the series is going? Where do you think it might go in the future? I really have no clue because there's real there's no rules. So I don't every time I guess anything, I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm hoping that he obviously leaps around a couple more times and then leaps home. I mean, that's the ultimate goal, right? Leaping home. And maybe he gets the girl he wants from season one. So I don't know. He has a lot of girls. Well, right. But I don't know that yet. Who knows what happens? Only me and most of the listeners of this podcast know. But you don't know. How fun is that? I feel like I'm the kid out of the loop. You're the one that we're all watching going, ooh, what does she think? I'm out of the leap. (laughs) I'm such a dork. (laughs) Out of the leap. (laughs) Yeah, but I like not knowing because it's new to me. It's not an old show to me. It's new to me. You know, something I noticed in this episode, while they were playing ping pong, we talked about a little bit earlier, but in the background, there was Castrol motor oil with an NFL logo on it. And the next episode has to do with football. Is that something? I don't know. It could be that whole burger theory thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't see anything else burger theory wise in this episode. One of the first things in this episode that happens is Al explains that Teresa only sees the truth because she's under five and she exists in a natural alpha state. And Al tells Sam that we have to tell her the truth. And then Al proceeds to lie to Teresa and say, Sam is the doll fairy. I thought he said they were angels. She asked if they were angels and Al said yes. And Sam said no. 
I would say, you know, the definition of an angel is, I guess, minions of God, fate, time, or whatever. Right. People that help that whatever powerful entity conduct business. So kind of angels, maybe, depending on who or what is leaping them around. Yeah, I don't really think there's a solid definition to any of that. What Al and Sam are. A whole bunch of gray area, right? (laughs) Yeah. So I don't think being angels was a lie. No, I think that was pretty much the truth. But what I'm saying is Sam doesn't think that they're angels at this point, even though Sam has said several times that he thinks it's God leaping them around. I have to say in this episode, though, it's cool that he doesn't have to hide that he's talking to Al because for the most part, he's with Teresa. So Al is for the first time included in the conversations with another person, like no pizza for you and things like that, (laughs) which he normally doesn't say. I love that part. No pizza for you. Like like he could eat pizza anyway. Yeah. I feel like this episode, Al and Sam were different because, I mean, like they still had their same relationship, but the way that it was played, Al was around more and Al also could track Kevin. It just was a different kind of episode as far as Al and Sam were concerned, or maybe just Al, but Al could track Kevin. He could be in the van. He was involved more in what was going on at home because Teresa was there and could see him. I mean, he read to Teresa and hung out with Teresa, watched Teresa. So Al was more involved in this leap, I think, than normal. I think that has to do with, like you were saying, Teresa being there. And in extension to that, Troyan being there because Deborah Pratt wrote this episode for Troyan to be in and find out what it's like to be in an episode. And that's pretty cool, too. Also, Sam was different in this episode. I don't know if you noticed, but he stuttered more. He, like, carried himself differently, like the great Scott Bakula always does whenever he leaps into someone different. He plays a little bit different. And in this episode, he just was more frazzled and frustrated, almost like a mother of three that never sleeps and is always working. I don't have three, <laughs> but I am I know. I really picked up on that because I have not seen that character from Scott Bakula before. Well, yeah, because when he was a woman before, it wasn't as stressful, I don't think, as what he's in now. And what's funny is he's like, and then she has PTA and she has this and that and this and what is wrong with her that she does all this stuff. I mean, it's funny because that's just how moms are. It's what we do. Right. And she's a real estate agent. Right. And she's a single mother. Right. That's hard enough as it is. And he has to go and save Kevin's life. Hey, he does a pretty good job, though. He pulls it off. And he pulled off that dress pretty good. (laughs) You know, and as I was watching it, all I kept thinking was he looked like Esmeralda from the Hunchback of Notre Dame, the cartoon version. But it was a little bit different when I Googled the image. But very, my, very similar. Yeah, in my memory, that's what he looked like to me. I have to say he made a great mom. He really did. And at first, I didn't know how he was going to handle it because he seemed a little overwhelmed in the first few minutes of the episode. Frazzled. <laughs> Definitely frazzled. He was like, stop it. Go to school without eating. Well, <laughs> Kevin was like, really, mom? You're going to send me to school? And he got better as the episode went on. But he also knew the kids more. Like, that, that helps. He he definitely had like a maternal feeling towards them. You know, like he was maybe not even maternal, but paternal. He became a parental role for them. Again, I think a lot of Linda stayed behind when Sam leapt in. Well, I know that we've had that happen before. But also, I think that when you become the sole caretaker of three kids, you really kind of don't have a choice other than to kind of warm up to them and soften up to them. And 
he did good. It was like he knew knew what to do. I think it's funny that he burnt the roast, but he took them out for pizza, so... On a technical side for this episode, I think it's really impossible to burn a roast that bad and not smell it burning previously because when he took it out, it was basically a piece of charcoal. Or have no smoke alarms go off or see any smoke even. Right. It made for a great visual taking it out of the oven and having a black roast with smoke coming off of it. But unless Sam's olfactory senses don't leap with his body, then he should have smelled it. I just kept thinking about the turkey, and it's a great big beautiful tomorrow. <laughs> From the Carousel of Progress. Yeah. It burns the turkey and there's smoke. And <laughs> I don't think I've ever burnt food that bad. Toast, maybe, but a like roast in the oven. That would be almost impossible, I think. But again, a great visual. Yeah, and then they couldn't go have pizza. No pizza for you. Another big part of this episode is the whole Jackie Arnett storyline and losing your virginity. And I think Sam handled that whole thing with Kevin pretty good also. I think when it's not your kid, you handle it better than if it was your kid. Like, I think that you view your kid as the baby they once were and cannot fathom them as sexual beings. I think that's like the whole thing. But why are these 15, 16-year-old boys competing on virginity? Like, you're 16. Why is that a competition in high school? Well, when you're a 16-year-old boy, that's all that's on your mind, I think. And even when you're a 28-year-old actor playing a 16-year-old boy, that's all that's on your mind. I wish that Al could have said out loud for everyone to hear that that guy wasn't going to lose his virginity (laughs) for another six years. Basically, yeah. It's five guys standing around lying that they're not virgins. Yeah. Making fun of each other for being virgins. And they play demons and dragons. When I was a kid, there was no point system or anything like that. Every, I think, social group has the hot chick and Jackie Arnett was the hot chick. And a lot of times when you're in a younger group like that, the hottest chick is also thought of as maybe the more popular chick, even when probably not even true at all. It's just people impose characteristics on that person. She didn't seem like the kind of person that they made her out to be either. Like they said that she'd slept around the whole school, but she seemed like a genuinely nice person. And she didn't seem like all the bad things they made her out to be because she actually cared about Kevin. Yeah. And I think she got tricked as well because she was convinced that it would be fun and he would enjoy it as a practical joke. And she was told if she did it, she would get, what, homecoming queen or something like that? Right. She'll go to the Mardi Gras dance with the guy that's the king. So she'll automatically become queen. But I don't think she would have done it if she thought that she was going to hurt Kevin's feelings like she did. But she definitely made up for it at the end. And then they all looked like jerks. So that was a great 80s teen movie ending. Yeah. Even the 90s movies were kind of like that, too. They had that great ending where that guy that was put down the whole time finally or the girl finally uh, was the most popular. Yeah. And that was a nice ending to it because it was such a serious major plot. But then this B story in the background, that that was just like a nice ending for it. This episode really didn't even need the abduction of Kevin. If you think about it, it could have been good without it. Right. Like what I thought it was going to be. But it was so much more powerful that Sam saved his life. Oh, yeah. Definitely. The part with Jackie Arnett where she's starting to say, uh, just take off your clothes. We don't have to talk. This brings up a rule I always had growing up, and I call it the you first rule. And it worked out a bunch because, believe it or not, growing up, if a girl liked me, I always had a fear that my peers were in a closet going to jump out and laugh at me. Maybe that's where this episode came from because a lot of people have that. Are you like Al, the five-year-old pervert? You're like (laughs) growing up as a kid when I was taking my clothes off. Like, what were you doing? (laughs) No, like, you know, if a girl's interested in you and you're in that situation like Kevin is, I guess uh, some of us get in that situation. I wasn't five. I was a teenager. 
Oh, it's just funny that you were like growing up and I just remember Al's stories in the episode where he was like, when I was younger and... But I think that's one thing to take away from this episode, the you first rule. Because if you do the you first rule, there's no way that situation would happen. And if it did, if the guys did jump out of the closet, she would already had her clothes off. So win-win. <laughs> well, I felt really bad for him in this episode because he was obviously scared and his friends were really mean. They weren't really friends. Very mean. I would not hang out with those guys. I really enjoyed what the actress who played Jackie Arnett did in this episode. Her name was Allison Barron. And I think she was the one out of any of the kids that were closest to the age that they were actually supposed to be. She was 18. Yeah, Kevin Michael Stoyanov was 20 in this episode. And so he was still a little old for high school. But 18's not too bad. I think I graduated at 18. Another thing in this episode that I had a question about was Al was able to center himself on Kevin because... Sam had so much to do as a mom, he couldn't really follow Kevin around all day. So my question is, how far is Project Quantum Leap's reach and how far away from Sam can Al view and in turn the project view? Like if Sam's in 1981, let's say, can in the future Project Quantum Leap or Al go anywhere on Earth and find out what's going on at any time? I don't know. See, it was weird to me that Al could be somewhere that Sam wasn't for the first time. Like in a portrait for Troyan where Al is with Troyan instead of Sam. I didn't understand how that worked because I thought that he was on Sam's brainwaves. Like I thought he was only visible to Sam. I mean, I know he's only visible to Sam, but I'm, I'm, I'm confused as to how he could be anywhere else but with Sam. Right. My first impression when watching the series again was that Al is seeing Sam's brain transmissions. So... Al would be seeing holographic projection of what Sam is seeing. So how far away can Al really be from Sam if Sam isn't seeing that? Like I said, there's no rules. Okay, but that's just <laughs> a question I had coming up because this is something that, you know, they're having trouble with government funding. And if the government knew that Al could go, say, uh, Sam leaped somewhere in time where something sensitive happened and they don't know the answer to and wanted to find out the answer, they could send Al or someone else to see what's going on anywhere on the planet. Um, it fits the story. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's really the answer. They're writers and they can do whatever they want. That might be why Al was a little bit sparkly this episode, because he was going further than normal. Oh, maybe, maybe. Maybe. Something I noticed about the sets in this episode, a lot of times when they build sets, they don't build ceilings to the sets so they can have the lighting. And uh, what they do is they put a piece of molding at about eight feet, which would be the, where the ceiling would be. And then they continue up with maybe the color of the ceiling, like white, for a few feet more. So, And you don't normally see that because the director won't shoot up, but in this episode... I saw a lot of shots up and where you saw that extra four feet above the eight feet. And it just looked weird. It looked like more of a set than an actual home. I totally didn't know. Be on the lookout for that. From now on. <laughs> I, but I didn't know. I wasn't aware of that. So I, I will have to look now. But I, I never even thought about how they did that. I saw a little bit of the Thou Shalt Not set in there, and I saw a little bit of the Professor's House from Starcrossed in there. Yeah, see, you're good at that kind of stuff. I'm not good at recognizing. And the Doorway to Kamikaze Kid. I know you mentioned that when we watched it, but I'm not good at recognizing sets and stuff like that. You know what else I recognized? Kevin, when he's, you know, got his shirt open and he's riding his bike past the molesters. Probably not a good idea. Showing <laughs> off his chest. Were they molesters or just murderers? From the music? I want to say molesters because that was very dark, menacing music. If there were just guys going to beat up somebody or kill them, I don't think they would have been as, 
I don't think I don't think the John Deere hat would have been on. You know, I don't. <laughs> is that like, is that like a thing? I don't know. I was ready to hear banjo music. See, I think that they didn't mention more about them because it was more creepy to not know. Exactly. Like we talked about earlier before you saw them, but they're creepy guys. And I want to say they were molesters. Probably. Which is odd because at first they were going after those girls at the bus stop, which were young girls. And then they were going after this older boy. And usually uh, molesters have a type that they go after. From what I know from the extensive knowledge I have on crime shows, which... (laughs) <laughs> isn't a lot but i mean like i used to watch csi and law and order svu has okay. tons of that stuff oh, i don't watch that that's horrible yeah not since i've been a parent do i watch that i, I could never no, watch no. that i'm like why would you watch a show where horrible things like that happen oh it's such a horrible show i don't watch that anyway so but normally it's like people watch for a really long time they're the person they're gonna take they don't just take someone off the side of the road because it's convenient they usually well i mean it's got to be sometimes they do but usually it's like they know their schedule and they like the planning and there's this whole big thing beforehand in this episode they were just kind of like whatever kid comes first (laughs) it just seemed odd but then kevin's a high school kid Right. He looks like somebody that could fight back. And usually those type of people from, again, what I know of from television shows, usually go after the weakest one in the herd. So those things seemed a little out of place for me. But again, maybe not molesters. Maybe they were just out to wreak some havoc. I don't know. This is another big topic, I think, and brought up by, again, Deborah Pratt. She usually brings up the big moral issues in her episodes. Yeah, they do seem to be more serious. And even if they are lighthearted and fun, there's still something bad happening. But they had such a good ending. Even the sibling rivalry was better at the end. I think for me, see, it w- I got the impression that Susan almost knew somehow that she had lost her brother and was appreciative to have him back. Well, she knew what happened. She knew that he got kidnapped and that the mom saved him. I mean... Yeah, I just read more into it. Like it was some kind of magical time thing. Oh, maybe. Yeah. I really enjoyed the ending with Al and Teresa, Dean and Troyan. The thing that I was wondering about while watching that is he promises to see her again one day. Yes. Yeah, does he Does he go back? I have no idea. I want to know what could this mean? Does he know that she is somebody in the future that he knows? Or does he think he's going to travel back in time and see her again? I don't know. But why would he like outright lie to her when earlier in the episode he said not to lie to her? I don't know. Maybe he's going to try and come back. But it was a really sweet part of the episode because she didn't want Al to leave. I also liked and I didn't notice until I read Phil's recap that Sam actually consents that he's about to leap and kind of gives the nod to Al before Al says goodbye to Teresa. I kind of noticed that in Thou Shalt Not at the end he knew it was... Time to leap. Something new for me. Something I didn't remember from watching it originally or didn't pick up on until this point. Yeah, if you watch the end of Thou Shalt Not again, you'll see that he knows he's about to leap. It's got to be some kind of like tingly sensation that he knows. Probably. But it was cool that he gave Al enough time to say goodbye. Great episode overall, I think. It's one that I enjoyed. Again, like you said, the topic of children being abducted, not fun to watch. When you're a parent. No. But other than that, I think great episode. Uh, If you watch this on Netflix or a different region other than Region 1 DVD, you had some good music in this episode. If you watch the Region 1 DVDs, I'm sorry. (laughs) 
the replacement music was not so good. It had some nice 80s music, and I really enjoyed it. I just like the 80s. I hope they go back to the 80s again. Okay, one last thought. Why is this abduction significant? We don't know. Like, why this abduction? Look at the history in Sam's lifespan. That's how far back they can go. I'm sure there are plenty of child abductions, rapes, murders. Why is Kevin's life significant? It could be what Kevin could accomplish in the future and didn't. It could be what Kevin's mother, Linda, would have accomplished had she not been looking for Kevin the rest of her life. Who knows? It's crazy, right, to think about, like, why this one? GTFW thinks that Kevin needed saving and sent in his angels, maybe, Al and Sam to save him, and they did. And Sam also fixed the dolly. (laughs) That looked a lot like Deborah Pratt from A Portrait for Troy, and did you notice that? Yeah, it was kind of weird. It was kind of cute, I thought. It probably was Troy and Stahl. That makes sense. Why not? Bring your kid's favorite doll to set, right? Put a Band-Aid on it. (laughs) I wonder who put the Band-Aid on it, the property master or the makeup department? (laughs) Questions we may never have the answer to. Or Troyan. Could have been. Or Deborah Pratt. Who knows? (laughs) If it was Troyan's doll. From the stories I hear about Scott Bakula, I'm sure Scott put it on himself. (laughs) Or Dean, even. You never know. Inchworm. Inchworm. Is that a song? Yeah, it's a famous children's song. It's actually a Hans Christian Andersen song from 1952, performed by Danny Kaye, which I love him in Inspector General. Have you ever seen that movie? No. Oh, it's a good movie. Danny Kaye is funny. Funny, funny guy. It was great to hear Dean Stockwell sing this. Yeah, it was very cute. It just added to their little relationship. I could have just watched Dean Stockwell and Troy and Belisario the whole 45 minutes. That should be a leap all on its own. Hey, it might be. You never know. As far as I know, she's not in any other episodes, but I would watch it. Yeah, that was cute. So what are the overall big morals, messages, and meanings we might take away from this episode? Uh, Pick up your kids at the bus stop. Definitely. Don't just let them walk home because they might not make it. And when they want to go see Raiders of the Lost Ark, let them out instead of making them run away. I don't think he was going to Raiders. No. I think he was going over (laughs) to Jackie's house. Yeah. So I don't think that ending would have been any different. (laughs) When in doubt, have Al follow the van. Yeah, if you have a hologram (laughs) at your disposal, have them shadow your kids at all times. And when someone rips your blouse open, make sure to close it back up before hugging your children. I don't know. He had a sexy chest. So (laughs) I think a lot of us are glad that he had his shirt ripped open. Put your hairy boobs away. (laughs) (laughs) What? I look like Scott a little bit, don't I? (laughs) If you squint, take your glasses off. It is that time, folks. It is time for Albie's interview with Velton Ray Bunch. This is a big one. And here it is. Born and raised in the small rural town of Goldsboro, North Carolina, it took a quantum leap for Velton Ray Bunch to arrive in Los Angeles to do what he does best, make music. With qualifications ranging from five Emmy nominations to working with Dolly Parton to scoring Star Trek Enterprise, Bunch was introduced to Mike Post, who was interested in recording some of his songs. Post recognized the unique talents of Bunch and used his pervasive influence to introduce Felton Ray to TV music, initially as a pianist and arranger for Ray Charles and Mac Davis. Bunch maintained success as a songwriter, evidenced by the renowned artists that would perform his songs, including Dolly Parton, The Commodores, and The Oak Ridge Boys. Felton Ray was soon scoring variety specials, resulting in over 25 critically acclaimed scores and compositions. At the urging of Post, 
Bunch began to score dramatic TV, first working on Magnum P.I. and Hill Street Blues. Felton Ray then started on Quantum Leap, for which he earned his first Emmy nomination. The show is a showcase of Bunch's versatility, providing a backdrop for his abilities in the genres of symphonic rock, country, rhythm, and blues, and of course, gospel. As a result of his hands-on approach and pleasant demeanor, Felton Ray developed a professional kinship with the show's star, Scott Bakula, which led to numerous opportunities for Bunch, including Bakula's Star Trek Enterprise. In addition to his episodic television scoring success, Felton Ray has scored telefilms, including his most recent projects, Flight 93, Three Blind Mice with Brian Dennehy, a Showtime picture, What Girls Learn, and a biopic based on Senator John McCain's book entitled Faith of My Fathers. He won an Emmy for the orchestral score for the Star Trek Enterprise episode, Similitude. And now here's Albie with Felton Ray Bunch. Hello. Hello, Mr. Bunch. Yes, how are you? Good, good. This is Albie from the Quantum Leap Podcast. Yeah, how you doing, Albie? Doing really good. Thank you very much uh, for taking the time to talk to us. For our listeners that don't know what a composer does, could you please explain the process? Oh, sure. Well, a composer is uh, the person who writes uh, original music for a show. You know, uh, anything from the background music that you uh, don't pay much attention to, to uh, hopefully the theme of the show in the beginning, and um, all kinds of stuff in between. I know you've done a lot of television shows, but can you tell us about your work on Quantum Leap? Yes, I can. Um, Quantum Leap was one of the most interesting projects I've ever worked on uh, throughout my career. Gosh, uh, for just a host of reasons, not only was it of wonderful quality, uh, but the whole show, the writing, the acting, of course, was superb, and and uh, and that's rare in television that you get all that kind of combination. But the stories were interesting, and uh, from a musical standpoint, it was really uh, interesting to do because, of course, the time period that uh, each show was set in, which was different week to week, which uh, meant that the music generally, uh, we tried to reflect the time periods that, uh, you know, whether it was the 70s or it was uh, during the Kennedy years or, you know, whatever it happened to be. You wanted to interpret that somewhat, so it made uh, for a lot of head-scratching and uh, trial and error, and it, but it also made for a really interesting uh, musical experience. The two names that come up when you're talking about music and Quantum Leap is yours and Mike Post. Could you let the listeners know what parts you did and what parts he did? Yes. Um, well, Mike uh, Post was the original composer on the show um, in terms of uh, it was his show. And uh, I had uh, started working with Mike on, on other shows and really was just starting in television. And um, so we did the first few episodes uh, together. And uh, then there were a couple of other composers that did bits and pieces here. And uh, but Don Belisario eventually came to us and kept uh, saying he liked this piece of music, but he didn't care for this one. He liked this one, you know, all through the thing. And uh, as it turned out, most uh, fortunately, a lot of the music that he liked was mine. And so uh, Mike, uh, Mike and I were best of friends. And uh, Mike said, you know, this would probably be easier if you just did the whole thing yourself. And um, and so really, that's how that happened, and I just took over the show. I don't remember how far into it, a few episodes, and did the rest of the seasons. And so that's how that worked. Do you have some favorite pieces from Quantum Leap? 
Yeah, I do. I have um, very memorable, I, I, and I was suppose that would be tied into the uh, different shows that I remember. It's been a long time, so you'll forgive my uh, <laughs> failing memory. Um, but uh, the ones that stick out to hear all these years later are certainly the, the Thanksgiving episode. I believe it was Thanksgiving, and uh, uh, there were a couple of pieces of music uh, during the actual Thanksgiving dinner, um, in which there was no dialogue. It was just a very, um, let's say, uh, empty except for the music, and, and I thought it was fabulously effective at the time, uh, and very rare for television that you get that kind of um, time without dialogue, without the special effects, you know, all that kind of stuff that covers up good music, mm-hmm. <laughs> in my opinion. But um, anyway, that particular episode, I remember, was great. And from a musical uh, creative standpoint, for me, probably the highlight of the whole series was the um, opening show to the last season, uh, the Kennedy assassination show. Mm. And um, and forgive me again, I don't remember the names of these uh, or the titles of the episodes, but uh, most of the fans will certainly know which one that was. But uh, that was... Uh, up until that time, one of the largest orchestras uh, that uh, had been used in television to score an event. And so we did it with a symphony orchestra that we put together, and it was a very theatrical, uh, bombastic, uh, dramatic score. And uh, it just made for a great experience for me. The Suite from Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, I really enjoy that on the Quantum Leap album. It's a really good one. Yeah, well, that's, that's where it came from. You know, we just took the compendium of all the music and put it together. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I like that too. And it was one of the most challenging things that I ever ever had to do. Uh, probably from a standpoint of, of time constraint. You know, we in television, you don't get the luxury of time as you frequently do in, in, in features. And so it, it was really great. And it was... Uh, it, it came off great. I just thought it, I was very proud of it. Did you do the theme to The Leap Home? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yeah. That, that's a beautiful piece of music. Oh, thank you. I like that, too. I had forgotten that piece. <laughs> you also worked on uh, Star Trek. Yes, I did. Yeah. I'm a big Trekkie, and you won an Emmy Award for the Season 3 Episode 10 Similitude. What was that like winning yeah. the Emmy Award? Well, uh, you know, it was... Um, Everybody always says this that's been nominated before, but I uh, completely was not expecting to win. I had been nominated um, a few times before, and it hadn't happened. So I really went into this with expectations of not winning at all. So I really enjoyed the experience. I took my mother as my date that night, and we and it was just a, a fabulous night. And uh, I was shocked. That's all I can say. The competition was very keen and. I was shocked, but uh, gosh, what a, what a great night that was. That's awesome. Can you tell me about your time with Star Trek? I th- What do you do? Uh, Next Generation and Enterprise, right? I did a little bit of Next Generation, but a uh, very limited amount on that. I, I uh, became involved in, in Enterprise uh, through Scott Bakula. Scott, of course, you know, was a primary actor on that, and... Um, and, and I've worked on him with so many projects. Beginning with Quantum Leap, and we developed a friendship and uh, a mutual working relationship, uh, respect, and um, he's just a wonderful guy. Anyway, uh, he's the one who got me involved in uh, in uh, Enterprise, 
And so I rotated that show with two other fellows who had been on those shows forever and ever. And um, I was the new guy coming in. So it was, it was a great experience. Was working with Scott on Quantum Leap like an asset to have him be able to play the piano or... Well, yes, it was. It was really uh, very much an asset. Scott's a very talented guy, and it's interesting working with some um, uh, someone like him who has musical knowledge, and uh, it, it makes for a different experience. In other words, uh, I can remember uh, one time specifically when we did the uh, John Lennon song "Imagine," and um, I had uh, played the piano on the original recording session, and Scott wasn't there. And Scott called me up, and he said, "I think that that." Uh, little melody is is not correct and i said god sure it is and i went and listened to it and uh uh he he was right the melody was not exactly the way that john lennon had played it uh on the piano uh in the original you know beetle recording da 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 the whole piano riff and uh I had to listen to a live version or some other version of it, and it had been played a little different, but Scott caught that. So I had to be on my, you know, P's and Q's for him. And But he's he's great. He's got great ears. He, he's a good singer, as I think all the fans know. And uh, he really, as far as music is concerned, he doesn't dictate what uh, you should do, but he makes great suggestions, and he has great taste. And so, yeah, it, it was an asset. Very definitely. Did you write the things for him to play on the piano sometimes? I would have to generally say no. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think now. There were a couple of pieces that uh, I did write that he learned here and there, but I, I you know, frankly don't remember all those those pieces. And, but he could learn. He could learn anything. I mean, really and truly, if you played it for him a couple of times, you know, he would get it, master it. And if he couldn't get it the first time, you could darn well know that he was going to have it the next time. So a very hardworking guy. You did so many different television shows, uh, ones that stick out when I was reading about you, Magnum P.I., yeah. Xena. You know, I, I never was. That's an interesting thing. I get credit for doing a lot of Xenas, and I never composed a single episode of that show. Uh, what they did is they licensed a, a lot of my music from different shows, different movies, and this kind of stuff, and they licensed it. But I could never take credit for writing that show. I never did. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Would it be okay for us to play one of your songs on our show on this interview? Sure, absolutely. Do you have one that you would be okay with us playing or like us to play? Well, the the song that most of the fans always want to hear is the one that Scott Bakula and I wrote together, uh, Somewhere in the Night. I think that's on the album, and uh, everyone always loves, loves that song.
most of the lyrics on that uh, song and I wrote the music and then we sat down and uh, put our heads together and uh, and finished it off together. I thought it came out quite nicely. Amazing collaboration between you guys. Yeah. It's a song that a lot of our listeners really like. Speaking of the uh, soundtrack to Quantum Leap, was that a good experience putting that all together and how did that work out? Oh, it was a fantastic experience. We went, uh, I don't remember how long we took in the studio, but uh, you know, the hardest part of all, um, and I have to give credit to Mark Banning on this, uh, the hardest part of all was uh, synthesizing all the music down to uh, an amount that you could put on a CD. Because as you can imagine, over five years of time, um, uh, I don't remember how many shows, a hundred and something episodes maybe, there was just a mountain of music there. And uh, Mark uh, really did the homework and went through and... and uh, decided what we should use and what we shouldn't. And then, of course, Scott had the final say. So we had to, you know, really winnow that down to uh, a manageable amount. That was probably the hardest part. And then we had to re-record most of the things um, in the studio and do, uh, I don't know, we just redid the whole thing. And so, yes, it was a fabulous experience. I love working with Scott. 
during the run of the series, did you have an orchestra at your disposal or was it mostly synthesizers? We had, uh, the oh, I don't remember, the first uh, couple of years we had an orchestra and uh, we would do most everything with the orchestra on a week-by-week basis. However, due to the ever-present budget uh, cuts and changes that all shows go through, uh, we had to start uh, backing off from that, and we would use smaller ensembles and then augment it with um, you know, synthesizers, um, samples, that kind of stuff. Frankly, most of Quantum Leap, with the exception of a handful of episodes, were done with some sort of live ensemble. Uh, and uh, it just worked much better for that show in terms of, you know, because the show is a period piece. And so uh, most of the time it just didn't sound good if it was synthesizers and um, uh, samples, that kind of thing. So most of the time we use live musicians. With all that music that you and other people compose for Quantum Leap, would you be in support of a future release of that music like they've done with uh, Star Trek in the past? Yes. Yes, I would. Yeah. Uh, are you talking about on Quantum Leap? Yes, on Quantum Leap. Just because it's a yeah. shame that it's all sitting there and uh, there's people that want to hear it and they can't. Yeah, I would love to do that. I uh, don't know. If, uh, that, that would be a Mark Banning question, and uh, he's the one who's headed up this project for years and years, and uh, uh, he would have to probably secure you know the rights to the music after all of this time, and uh, uh, that would be quite an undertaking. But yeah, I would be in full support of doing that. When you wrote the music to go along with the episodes of Quantum Leap, did you also have a hand in picking the songs that were from other artists that went in the Quantum Leap? Uh, I, yes, I would say had a hand in it. I had uh, um, a suggestions. When songs from outside were used, it uh, frequently would come from uh, the writers, uh, whoever wrote the episode, and would have an idea that they would build scenes around. And uh, and then, of course, it then ultimately would come down to money as to whether they could license uh, the songs or not. For instance, I remember that Imagine was extraordinarily expensive to license at the time. And uh, somehow they were able to pull that off. But, um, yeah, those two, those two factored in. And Don Bellasario would ask me sometimes if I had an idea uh, uh, of of songs and uh, that type of thing, but it was a very much a hands, uh, just a an additional hand on deck for that. Um, the reason why I'm asking is uh, I don't know if when you compose the music, if you made it match up with those outside songs, so the whole feeling would be uh, like a unified feeling. And also, how do you feel about in the DVD releases them replacing the music, and does it change your vision? Well. Um... Well, that's a double uh, double barrel question there. Um, yes, the answer to the first part of the question was uh, I absolutely, when a song was being used uh, that was from an outside song, such as uh, Imagine, I would always consider trying to weave it in and out um, and weave the score into it so that it was smooth. Uh, I know we were trying to, you know, maybe matching keys or matching tempos or whatever it was called for, but... Um, I always really uh, like to have it as smooth a transition as possible. And uh, part two of that question, you asked me how I felt about them replacing the music on the DVDs. And 
I absolutely detest that. I really um, am adamantly against that, but that's a process that almost uh, all the studios are doing now. And um, I, we have very, very little control over that from, from a composer standpoint. Uh, and they do it primarily and only because of money. Yeah. In other words, um, when the shows like Quantum Leap or Magnum or any of those those type of shows, when they were originally written, the, the idea of doing DVD releases really wasn't um, a realistic possibility at the time. So the music, when they made a deal with me or a contract or with the musicians that were used, that was not a consideration. So many, many years later, when they went back to do DVDs, and um, that was considered a new use of the music, and they had to re-license it. And, and that's, uh, it can be expensive. You know, you can imagine um, the cost of a uh, big orchestra repaying everybody again for, for, uh, for using that. And so... Most of the studios, frankly, don't even ask. They just do it, and uh, uh, they do it with synthesizers and stuff. And so I find it appalling. There's absolutely nothing I can do about it. Hopefully one day they will do a re-release with the original music. I would like to see that happen. Uh, I really would. And uh, and there have been a, a couple of other shows that I've worked on who, uh, for instance, I did uh, the uh, season of Nash Bridges, the last season that was on with uh, Don Johnson. And they, uh, CBS approached me about using, they were going to do exactly the same thing, replace all the music with, um, you know, uh, cheaper synthesized music, and uh, but they came to me and we were we were able to work out a deal to salvage the music, which was good, you know, because it was better that uh, the original music was there and how it was intended to be heard. So, but that's very very rare. When that happens, do do they consult you at all, or do they just bring in an outside team and not really care about the quality as much? Yes, exactly. They uh, I. From what I've seen from the outside, they really don't care a whole lot, though. You know, they have their own uh, guy or two, most, mostly who remain anonymous, and they sit there and just do stuff to replace music, yeah. And so, um, as I said, uh, I can't speak very highly of that. I'm, I'm really against that process. I'm glad we agree. Yeah, <laughs> good. Okay. It's something I wanted to know when I, I, I love music. I have no musical talent whatsoever, but I love it. And uh, especially soundtracks and scores. And I'm wondering when you're on a show like Quantum Leap or Enterprise, do you watch the dailies and then get an idea of the song you want to write? Or do you have songs that you come up with all the time stuck in your head and maybe apply them to certain episodes or certain situations? No, um, it, it doesn't work that way too often. Um, when you're doing a television series, you, you're um, you're guided obviously first and foremost by the picture and what's on the screen, and you 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 need to enhance uh, that picture. But to, to you, uh, you know, seldom ever have a pre uh, what would I say a <laughs> a pre mental picture of music that's going to happen, and then you plug it in somewhere. It almost never happens that way. But for the most part, uh, almost on a series such as Quantum Leap, it goes so fast because they're producing so many episodes that um, they would give me a uh, 
we would see a rough cut of the show before it was finally edited, but it would give me a very good idea of what the final show was going to be like. So instead of maybe an hour, it might be just put together and be an hour, 45 minutes or two hours long. You know, you know it's going to be edited and changed, but it gives you a good idea of what that show is going to be like. So then I can go uh, home and formulate themes, formulate ideas. Uh, uh, and if I have a, you know, an unusual a stroke of brilliance, you know, I would call Don Belisario and say, hey, you know, I was thinking about doing this or something and run it by him. But I'll tell you, it's a fast and furious process in television and you don't have time to really sit and ruminate um, <laughs> a whole lot. You know, you just have to do it. And uh, so you get, that's the way it works. You get a rough picture and you just start in. In uh, today's age of digital downloads and iTunes and Amazon, uh, what yeah. is the best way for your fans, people that want to support you to buy your music? Is it digital or still like CDs? Well, in terms of Quantum Leap, it would have to be the CDs. That um, that seems to change um, uh, as the newer shows go on. Now, most of the newer shows are coming out and making deals with iTunes, making deals, you know, uh, so that they're downloadable. Uh, that, of course, was not possible when we first started doing Quantum Leap. So, uh, and... Uh, I don't I don't really know how that would work on a show like Enterprise. I don't think most of that music is available um downloads. I don't know for sure. I haven't looked. Does a composer get residuals? Very very small amounts. Yes, but very small amounts. Enough to buy a Starbucks coffee maybe. <laughs> well, that's quite a bit nowadays though. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. It's going up. I read in your bio that you worked with Ray Charles. Yeah, I sure did. Yeah. I worked with Ray when I first uh, moved out to Los Angeles, and uh, I put together a little group called Strut, a singing group, uh, and uh, wrote some songs for them, did some arranging, and uh, one of his um, people on his uh, record label from Tangerine Records heard the group uh, in a little club here in Los Angeles and approached me, and so they signed us to a contract, and... Uh, I went out uh, and conducted for Ray for a very brief time. We did some interesting concerts, but I was on the road with him for a very brief time. And the group uh, Strut Thing Backgrounds. Yeah, that was quite quite an experience. And Dolly Parton, too, huh? Yes, I have quite a long history with Dolly, and she's uh, one of my all-time favorite people and all-time favorite artists. Uh, one gifted lady, I'll tell you that. I agree. Is there any stories uh, you have from working on Quantum Leap that you'd like to share with uh, your fans and our listeners? Something that you are really proud of? Um, well, I, I would think, yeah, the, the most proud moment of was at the end of the uh, Kennedy episode in the final season, because that was such a difficult show to do, and it was a huge orchestra, and we had such limited time, and... Um, to do it, and I thought that we were able to pull that off in an amazing fashion. Really, I, I really did, um, and uh, that was one of those scores that I thought going in or coming out of it, I should say, that I thought was certainly um, Emmy worthy, and uh, you know, and we didn't win. So, um, but I thought it was a, a really, really good score, and so that that was my favorite musical memory. I think. 
But I'll tell you one one interesting aside about Quantum Leap, and this um, that I was speaking to earlier in this uh, interview was talking about the variety of music every week, you know, how uh, it reflected different time periods. I remember very well in that episode with Kennedy, the Kennedy, and we had a massive symphony orchestra over on the NBC lot, and we recorded it, and it was so exciting and bombastic and big. And then the next week, the very next episode was, uh, I don't remember the title, but I only used two musicians. I used a jazz violin player and um, and I think an, and a guitar. I mean, it was just sort of a jazz fiddle sort of score. So to go from, you know, 100 musicians one week to two the next week was, was pretty interesting. Like you were saying, the different settings each episode, so it required different things. Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. It did. I, boy, I, there, there was a lot of times I really had to to do my homework, you know, because no, no matter how good a composer you are, uh, there are genres that you just don't uh, know as well and don't do as well as some others. So there were there were a lot of times when I go, wow, I really got to go do my homework. So thank you so much for joining us. Very much appreciated that you took the time to talk to us today. Okay, well, thank you. I enjoy talking to you. Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the Fox television show Terra Nova. The show that has me so excited. The cheapest, most energy efficient data access device on the planet. Yes, welcome aboard. I know I'd be scared to death on a journey as incredible as Terra Nova. But I'd really like to know what our audience is looking forward to the most about the show. Rebreathex, breathe like it's 2099. Oh, over seems a little like Jurassic Park, maybe a little Back to the Future with the adventures of Indiana Jones. I'm looking forward to it. The TerranovaPodcast.com. Go to TerranovaPodcast.com to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Well, what are you waiting for? interesting because my son, Nicholas Dante Belisario, had been going through a, a phase where he couldn't sleep and I found him downstairs watching all the episodes and laughing hysterically because he was born while the show was on. So he kind of missed out on it. I mean, Troy and she got to be in Another Mother and she's turned into, I think, a really marvelous actress. And I share this story because when she did an, another mother, she was four years old. And I'm on the set, and it's her first day, and I like come out of my office and come down. They've got her in her little costume, and I'd worked on her lines with her, and we're on the set, and Dean Stockwell walks on the set. And he'd met her before, because she'd been down there. And he looked at her, and he looked at me, and he looked at her again, and he came over to me and said, what is she doing here? <laughs> and I said, oh, I, I wrote an episode for her so she could see what mommy and daddy do and be a part of it. And he said, do you need the money? <laughs> and I said, no, no, I, no, what, what do you mean? He said, do not take away her childhood.
That's right. And I saw 50 years of, of his life. He started at five years old on Broadway. And it gave me chills. And I remember after the show aired, we got calls for movies, we got calls for television miniseries for her to go to work. And I could not get Dean's message out of my head. And I looked at my four-year-old daughter, who was so, she was so wonderful because it was so natural to her. And her attitude was like, we can only use it for this much time to rehearse. And she would say, why is someone saying my lines? <laughs> So I waited, and I said to her, when you're ready, you'll come back to this. And where we lived, the Olsen twins lived across the street, and they would pedal on their little bicycles and come up and play with her when they were like six years old. And, and I remember taking the, it was Troyan's birthday, maybe her sixth or seventh birthday, and I took a bunch of kids to the VIP tour at Universal, and the Olsen twins were with us. I didn't think anything of it until we got off the tram to get something to eat and I looked up and there were 300 people around them. And I realized these young girls would never have a life like I was able to give my daughter by making this choice. So I'm grateful for Dean and uh, I'm just glad that now that she's saying, okay, I still want to do this, She's doing it on her decision and her time, and she got to be a kid, and she got to be a, a teenager, and all that kind of good stuff. So thank you, Dean. This is Jane Sibbett, and you are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. That was a really cool interview. I think this is our first one with like a behind-the-scenes crew, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good interview to have someone with a production person of that level it's cool that he was also on enterprise with scott bacula so and and the song was really cool and that they did it together was even cooler yeah i love that song and i had no idea that they wrote it together i just thought it was a cover just because it was so good i just assumed it was from something else so after talking to him do you think he's even cooler than you thought before oh yeah Your interviews are usually pretty good, but it's nice to get to know the people that put Quantum Leap together just a little bit more. I'd like to think they're getting a little bit better as we go because I'm getting a little bit more comfortable. It's a little intimidating talking to all these people that were a part of such a great show. We have a lot of feedback for this episode, don't we? Yay, feedback. Woohoo! We have a voicemail from Phil. He's one of the two of our favorite Aussies. (laughs) Or maybe they're the same. I mean. No, they're definitely different people. G'day, Albie and Heather. This is Phil, sending you another voicemail from Down Under. I hope I sound better this time. I didn't mention it, but on the last voicemail I left, I was actually getting over the flu and probably didn't sound like my usual chipper self, so hopefully I come through sounding more animated this time. Anyway, I figured that now that I'm up to date with the podcast and now that QLP is the life for me, I thought I'd call in again and share a few more thoughts because I realized that while I've had a lot to say about how much I enjoy your podcast in my previous communication, I haven't said very much so far about Quantum Leap itself and why I'm such a big fan. So I wanted to talk about the show, since it's the reason we're all here on this journey together. Brittany and I are getting close to the end of Season 2 in our Quantum Leap watching, which is a treat for me, because right now we're watching the episodes that were actually among the first episodes of Quantum Leap that I originally saw back in the late 90s. Unlike you, Albie, I wasn't actually lucky enough to start watching Quantum Leap from the beginning, so I had to discover Season 1 and the earlier episodes of Season 2 later on. It's funny that the first episode you tasked me with recapping was Another Mother, because that was the first episode of Quantum Leap that I ever saw. 
I didn't see the whole episode, just a couple of scenes with Kevin and his buddies, which made me think that the show was some kind of high school drama, believe it or not. I didn't even know it was called Quantum Leap. Then I watched the All-Americans episode in full, and that episode taught me about the show and what was going on, and I was hooked. I watched the rest of the series from that point, and I didn't miss a single episode. There are some great things I've always loved about Quantum Leap, and which set it apart from a lot of other shows I like. The first one is that every episode is different. A different place, a different time, a different story with different characters, and perhaps most importantly, a different setting. You can think about any number of TV shows that you're a fan of, and I'll bet you that most, if not all of them, are largely set around a small number of regular locations. The characters on Buffy the Vampire Slayer were always at Sunnydale High, at least in the show's early years. Then they were always at Buffy's house, or the bronze, or the magic shop. The characters on MASH were always at the hospital. The characters on Cheers were always in the bar. The characters on How I Met Your Mother were often found at Ted's apartment, or at McLaren's bar. The characters on True Blood would be at Sookie's house, or at Merlot's, or at Fantasia. And while having regular, familiar settings in an episodic television series is certainly no bad thing, the fact that every episode of Quantum Leap is set in an entirely different place and time makes it unique, because you never know where or when Sam and Al are going to end up next. Only the brief cliffhanger at the end of each episode gives any hint of what is to come. Which brings me to the second reason I love Quantum Leap. Never before or since has a TV series made such a consistently effective use of the classic end-of-episode teaser. As well-written and compelling as the individual episodes of Quantum Leap are, particularly those with a significant message to impart, when it comes to the simple experience of watching and enjoying the show, especially for the first-time viewer, nothing compares to those few brief seconds at the end of every episode where the familiar blue light surrounds Sam and he realises he's about to be transported to his next leap and he has no idea of where he's going and can hardly wait to find out. And one way or another, the result is always a surprise. Although it has to be said that the episodes that end with a teaser for an old episode are kind of frustrating. When Brittany and I are watching an episode together and that happens, I always skip ahead to the next episode so she can watch the correct teaser, even if I have to switch discs in our DVD player to do it. Although speaking of old teasers, I recently noticed something interesting. The episode A Portrait for Troyan ends with a teaser for the episode Kamikaze Kid from Season 1, and the following episode, Animal Frat, begins with a recap of Kamikaze Kid. So it's presented as if Sam has leaped from kissing Jill at the end of Kamikaze Kid straight to being at the frat party in the opening sequence of Animal Frat. This would suggest that Kamikaze Kid was aired as a rerun between the two new episodes. And considering the original air dates for those episodes were a few weeks apart, there was definitely room for the rerun to be aired. And if this is the case, then it's curious to note that in Kamikaze Kid, Sam remembers that his sister Katie was a victim of domestic abuse. And in Animal Frat, Sam mentions that his brother Tom was killed in Vietnam. If these two episodes were indeed aired back-to-back, then maybe the writers wanted those two significant details of Sam's family backstory to be fresh in our minds. Perhaps they'll play into an upcoming episode somehow? I guess we'll have to wait and see. But getting back to why I love Quantum Leap, another reason the show is so great is because of the many themes it addresses from episode to episode, and the important issues that are encountered along the way. It's impressive that episodes like The Color of Truth, which deals strongly with the concept of racial prejudice, and Kamikaze Kid, which is a more light-hearted episode on the surface, yet still makes the viewer aware of both the short and long-term effects of domestic violence occur so early in the series. Certainly, the writers weren't afraid of tackling those kind of issues. But maybe the thing I enjoy the most about Quantum Leap is the relationship between its main characters, Sam and Al. In an era of TV series with large ensemble casts and constantly interweaving plot lines and story arcs, Watching a show with only two regular characters and an entirely different plot for them to deal with in every episode is definitely a different experience. In a universe where everything around them is constantly changing, Sam and Al are the show's constant, and their friendship is the anchor that holds everything together. I really like that Sam woke up at the beginning of his first leap with almost total amnesia, to the point where he couldn't remember Al at all. 
because even though the two of them were already long-time friends at that point, it gave their friendship a chance to begin again almost, at least from Sam's point of view. And that friendship definitely becomes more and more important to Sam as the series progresses. As a viewer, it's fun watching the friendship grow between Sam and Al over those early episodes, and it seems like the rapport between Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell themselves was also growing during this time, which can definitely be seen in the interaction between the characters they play. I love the scene near the end of Kamikaze Kid, where Sam sees Al, and the two of them start singing together. It's little moments like this that show how strong their friendship has gotten, and how important a part of the show it really is, and that scene in particular always puts a smile on my face. However, that's not to say that Sam and Al always get along. From time to time, the two of them do butt heads and have different opinions, maybe over the reason Sam is on a particular leap and what he's there to do, maybe over how to deal with a certain problem at hand, or maybe over an important issue that the two of them are confronted with due to the circumstances surrounding one of Sam's leaps. There are some examples of this in later episodes, so I won't go into details. Overall, though, it's fair to say that Sam and Al are both genuinely good people, just with different opinions in regards to some aspects of life in general. Marriage and fidelity is one example that quickly leaps to mind, no pun intended, but there are others. I think the main reason for the differences between Sam and Al is the way the character of Sam Beckett was structured. He comes from an era of TV storytelling where the good guys were the good guys and the bad guys were the bad guys, and there wasn't a lot of room in between for ambiguity. There's really nothing of the anti-hero about Sam Beckett. He's a man with a strong moral code which governs his beliefs and his actions at all times. This may not seem to be the most interesting type of character, compared to the TV shows of today where the good guys are often capable of doing terrible things and then having to redeem themselves, and the bad guys can be heroic in their own unconventional ways before reverting to their usual less than admirable selves, but it's what gives Quantum Leap its heart and its mission statement. It's fitting that Sam's leaping only seems to affect individual lives on a smaller scale, because standing up for the little people is just the kind of person that Sam is. Even Al, despite his quirks, is a good-natured person with a good heart. He's just different enough from Sam to create a sufficient contrast between them to serve the story, as it wouldn't be very interesting if a show's two main characters always agreed about everything. So even when Sam and Al do butt heads, it's enjoyable to watch. So there you have it, why I love Quantum Leap. I hope you enjoyed listening to my thoughts on this incredible show. If anybody out there has something to add, or even to debate something that I've said, I'd love to hear from you. The more discussion, the better. I'm sure I'll have more to say in later podcasts, probably about the specific episodes being covered. In the meantime, all I can say is thanks for giving time to my emails and voicemails, and also for letting me do the episode recaps. I hope my first one wasn't too long. But before I go, I should take this opportunity to officially cast the first vote in this whole Phil or Hayden debate, and state for the record that Hayden, McQueenie and I are in fact two different people. Unfortunately, we do live in different cities, and therefore I am unable to provide any photographic evidence, so I guess you'll just have to take my word for it. But rest assured, we're not the same person, at least in this timeline. So hopefully that settles it for everybody. Happy leaping! Thank you, Phil, for that. Where do we start? Well, I I agree that it's cool that an episodic television show does different locations, different people, different settings every episode. That's pretty cool. Did you notice the location they did in this episode? To me, it looked like a cross between Wisteria Lane and the development from Poltergeist. It's been a while since I saw Poltergeist, so I don't Scary. know. But yeah, it was kind of creepy because it looked like a suburban America, but then there were tumbleweeds, so I'm not really <laughs> sure where they were. Uh, and another thing, he mentioned the teasers being wrong or the kamikaze kid mix up there, which we laughed about. Hopefully one day they can fix it. But I like that idea that Phil has when he watches with Brittany about just starting the beginning of the next show, because that's what the leap in would be, the beginning of the next show. So just watch that first segment before the opening theme song on the next show, and then you're good. They have to fix it. (laughs) It, Yeah. 
hopefully one it's, day. It's bad. And hopefully one day you and I can be a part of that process. Hey, I'm all for that too. All right. We'll let them know what we think. The last thing that I wanted to comment on is the friendship with Al, which we talk about all the time, but it's cool that it did kind of start over and you watch it grow. And I'm sure that Dean and Scott were great friends. If they weren't, they did really good on screen. (laughs) (laughs) By the end of the series, they must have been like brothers. Oh, probably. And uh, now I have a new theory. Phil says he's not Hayden. But remember we asked Juan to work on his Australian accent? (gasps) What if Phil is actually Juan? Juan, you're doing really good. It's very believable. Is it Hayden? I don't know. What about this? What if there is no Hayden? What if Phil (gasps) was Hayden and now Phil is Hayden and Phil? And Hmm. and Juan. He's working hard. (laughs) I don't know. And and the excuse that they're in different cities, I don't know. I want to see photographic evidence that they're each their own person. We really need to talk to Brittany. (laughs) I think we need to travel to Australia. (laughs) That might be on the itinerary. Who wants to fund a trip to Australia? (laughs) We'll put it on Kickstarter. (laughs) Hey, if potato salad can make that much money. Solve the mystery. Are Phil and Hayden the same person? Who wants to fund this on Kickstarter? You never know. <laughs> you never know. That should be the thing on Patreon. The uh, the re- <laughs> the reward should be that we get to find out if Hayden and Phil are actually two different people. Get them both on the phone at the same time. But it could be Juan. See, now oh, Juan. I can just threw that in the mix. Juan, why are you messing with us? It could be John or Tawny. Hey, well, Tawny, <laughs> that's really good. It could be Jill. Have we ever heard Jill's voice? No. All right. And we have an email from Martin. These emails will be read by one. Now allow me to tell you my GFTW story. One week ago, both of the headliner I was coming to this convention to see canceled. I had the chance to back out of this trip and go to another convention. I didn't do that for several reasons, not the least of which was because I committed to getting you an interview with Allison Barron. Jumped to last night in the VIP party. They had a raffle with many great prizes. One of these is a free VIP pass to a future convention, which I won last night. If I had never started listening to your podcast, I wouldn't have started watching Quantum Leap again. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have known that Allison Barron was a guest on an episode in addition to being in Night of the Demons. Had I not known that, I might have canceled my trip without even thinking twice, and I wouldn't have a free VIP for a future show. If this isn't GFTW at work, I don't know what is. What I guess I'm trying to say is thank you for your wonderful podcast. It certainly had a positive impact on my life. Martin Totten. That is amazing, Martin. He went to try to help us out and look what happened to him. That's a great example of the butterfly effect. Say we didn't make this podcast, he would have never ended up going to that convention and he would never win that package. So, wow. So you're welcome. I mean. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty cool. And we have another email. This one's from Donnie. Hey, Albie and Heather. I'm writing with a discussion point and a quick question. In your Animal Frat episode, you questioned why there was a debate about Vietnam in a chemistry class instead of a political science class. I think the writers made this choice because university chemistry departments were often the focus of Vietnam War protests back in the 60s. Some of these departments conducted chemical and biological weapons research and also cooperated with Dow Chemical, the company that produced Napalm and Agent Orange, in recruiting students on campus. This is probably why the writers of the episode chose to focus Elizabeth and Duck's attempted bombing on the chemistry building. Hope that helps. Now for the question. You've mentioned in past podcasts the possibility of a quantum leap panel at Dragon Con this year. I haven't been able to find anything about it. Do you have any inside information on this? I live in Georgia, so should I be getting my hopes up? Thanks, and keep up the great work. 
This Quantum Leap fan looks forward to each new release. Donnie. Thank you, Donnie, for that information. Uh, that's the great thing about this being a whole Quantum Leap podcast community is there's more than just me and Heather trying to figure this stuff out because both of us had no idea about that part. So uh, thanks for the information. And now all of us know. And I think we're still waiting to hear back on the Quantum Leap panel for Dragon Con. Nothing's official yet for the Quantum Leap panel, but guess who's going to be on an Originals panel and a Vampire Diaries panel? That would be me. How exciting. I'm very nervous. <laughs> oh, you'll be okay. Yeah, I think the Originals one, as of right now, is on Friday, and the Vampire Diaries one, I think, is on Sunday. So if Right, all and, subject to change. Right, and so if anybody wants to come see me hopefully not fail miserably. <laughs> um, <laughs> you'll be okay. You talk to 2,000 people a couple times a month. But not live. <laughs> right, they're all going to be staring at you. <laughs> But yeah, we'll be there and hopefully there will be a Quantum Leap panel too. And that one would be me. Right. And we have an email from Father Beast. I had some thoughts that came up during the watching of the episode of Animal Frat that I'm not sure actually applies to the episode, but has resonance through the whole Quantum Leap series. In our history, the American people have done a number of things which we're ashamed of. From slavery, to the treatment of Native Americans, the things which have been done by America itself or by Americans we are not proud of is fairly long. I have come to believe that it is important that we remember these things, not so we can feel the shame, but so we can be wiser the next time that similar situations arise. I think that we, as an American people, have learned some lessons. For example, a lot of people in this country were against the Vietnam War, which was touched upon in the episode Animal Frat, but this led to the ostracizing of soldiers who fought in that war, an action which people who did that were later ashamed of. Because that memory was bright in our minds, most people did not make that mistake again during the Iraq War of the last decade. The distinction was made, honoring the soldiers while campaigning against the war itself. I also recall some people using propaganda terms from the Vietnam War, saying that people who were against it were anti-American. I noticed that most people did not buy into that either. For example, during World War II, the United States actually imprisoned a large number of American citizens, for being related to people in a country our country was at war with. This prejudice was peripherally touched on in the episode The Americanization of Machiko. After the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, there was an outcry from a few to go after people of similar faith or cultural heritage as those who attacked our country, but most of us ignored that call. I think it was because we remembered what happened before and don't want to repeat those mistakes. One of the beneficial things Quantum Leap does is place the viewer right in the middle of society, making various mistakes of 20, 30, or 40 years ago. We acknowledge that things are better now, but we remember the mistakes of the past so that we don't repeat them. We look back and see the horrible things that were done, and that inspires us to tell ourselves that, I'm not going to be like that. So that's my thought process at the moment. Father Beast. And we have another email from Father Beast. Okay. Sam leaps in while apparently making breakfast in the middle of chaos. A brother and sister are quarreling loudly over a shirt they're ripping, the dog just pulled a plate of sausage and eggs on the floor, and the little girl just had her doll's head pulled off by the dog, presumably before he went to ruin breakfast. In the middle of all this, Sam is the mother. To add insult to injury, a divorced mother. Although, if you take a moment to think, being still married would be a different complication. But still, single mothers lead ridiculously busy lives. On top of all this, it turns out that the four-year-old girl, played by Troyan Belisario, 
see Sam as he really is, and furthermore, can see and hear Al. Seeing some strange man wearing her mother's clothes understandably freaks her out, but then she adjusts to these angels in her home and is just unbearably cute for the entire rest of the episode. I mean seriously, every time she came on screen I kept saying that she was unbearably cute. Okay, notes. The dog name is Wookie, and Kevin does a Yoda impression early on. Clearly this is a Star Wars family. Does Al have a new handling? I'm used to the one that looked like it was made of color cubes. The mother is a real estate agent, but we don't get to see her doing her job. I guess that it's just a convenient device to allow her a flexible schedule. This episode seems to have dispensed with the replay of the previous leap out of the last episode. The narration intro is the one I'm most familiar with, but who is this guy narrating? I'm used to the classic Deborah Pratt. Al's tie looks like it has bites taken out of it. Sam tells the older daughter that Magnum will be on for another 8 years. Maybe he doesn't care about spoilers? Kevin says he's going out to see the Raiders again. That's presumably Raiders of the Lost Ark, which came out in 1981 the year before. Would it still have been in theaters? This episode had some weird sparkly effect when Al would fade in or out. Hmm. The chase scene where Sam is chasing the van and the lame station wagon is actually pretty cool. Sam knows martial arts? That's gotta come in handy. I wonder how many other talents they're going to give him. After beating up the bad guys, Sam goes into the van to free Kevin and hugs him in this nice spontaneous moment. Kevin pulls away from the hug looking at Sam, who he thinks is his mother, with this strange look. I'm guessing that hugging this man doesn't feel the same as hugging his mother. Quantum Leap has a lot of such moments, casually dropped in if you look for him. All in all, I really like this episode, maybe because the family is really interesting. Kevin is clever and funny, the middle daughter has this cool obsession with Tom Selleck, and Teresa's just unbearably cute. Additionally, the group of guys at school have the typical cruelty of many their age. Plus we have Sam kicking butt on the bad guys, and lots of joke which don't get in the way of the story. Quite satisfying. Next time, quarterback play. Father Beast. He is a wise man. Yeah, I really like that because it's true, and I'm glad to see that we are doing better. My whole feeling about war, I think Boy George said it best when he said war is stupid. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not really pro-war either, but I agree that we shouldn't imprison people from the other countries of the war or that we're at war with. And I agree that we shouldn't ostracize the soldiers for the war that we're in because they're just following orders. On both sides? Or our, our soldiers. <laughs> are soldiers on both sides just following orders? Or are the other guys always bad guys? No, I well, I, I think every situation is different. Okay. And thank you for that, Father Beast. Always great insight. This one's from JL. Hi, Albie and Heather. I've been listening to your Quantum Leap podcast since the beginning and have really enjoyed it. Figured now is a good time to drop you a note since you're on the verge of covering one of my favorite episodes, Another Mother. Like many of your listeners, Quantum Leap was my favorite show growing up and a big influence on who I am today. Another Mother is always one of the first episodes that comes to mind when reminiscing about it. I think one of the reasons it stuck with me for so long is due to what may be the single most memorable quote from the entire series. That's not my mommy, that's a man. Only Quantum Leap could have a line like this be both a surprise twist and still make perfect sense. As much as I vividly remember that quote, on the other hand, my Swiss cheese brain always mistakenly remembers Al's alphabet rap as being from this episode when it's actually from Shock Theater at the end of Season 3. Memory's a funny thing. Anyways, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this episode. Keep up the good work. Best, JL. Thank you so much, JL. It's nice to hear from new listeners. 
that's one of the cutest lines that she says. And uh, right next to secular undercourse. What's secular undercourse? <sighs> I have that Swiss cheese brain thing. Also, I remember things, and I could swear they're one thing. But if I find out it's actually something different, and I get very confused. Memories are very malleable. Yeah, and I think if you watched something 20 years ago, I think that it's different than if you watched it recently. Like, because you remember a lot of it as a whole. Like, you probably remember Quantum Leap as a whole instead of each individual episode. And who knows how I put those files in my brain in what order. You got to organize your brain filing cabinet. We have a Facebook feedback from Scott Shadell. He says, greetings and salutations. I was listening to another podcast, can't remember which, and heard about a new podcast. So I was a little disappointed to see that you have been doing this for a while. As of this point in the space-time continuum, I am finishing episode 11. I have been following along with you and watching, then listening to the podcast. I remember watching the show when it aired and loving it. I was very upset that at the start there are people who are hating on you. Both of you are nice and good hosts. Keep up the good work. If Heather stops, then I refuse to listen to any more shows. JK. Aw, that was nice. People like you. People like us. JK. Joking. Right. Just kidding. Just kidding. Right. Okay. So I can quit. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, that was really nice. But I also think that was kind of a misunderstanding in the beginning. Well, there was that one guy that said we're a waste of internet space. Well, that's what I mean. I think that he was a little <laughs> he was a little rough on us. <laughs> oh, well, we haven't gotten any hate mail lately. Yeah, well, one isn't bad. No. Not that we're saying we need any. And great news. Our essay giveaway has come to a close, which means we have not one, but two essays. That's awesome. Our first one is from David Feldman. Hey, Leapers, here's my submission for the essay contest. To put it simply, Quantum Leap has, for close to 20 years now, inspired me to be a better person. I began watching Quantum Leap several years after it was canceled. What impressed me the most about the series was the virtuous nature of the main character, Dr. Sam Beckett. Sam was a role model for me in my early teenage years, and for good reason. He was a renaissance man, intelligent, athletic, polite, and above all, decent. With very few exceptions, he always put the well-being of others before himself. And on those rare occasions when he did let petty emotions get the better of him, as in Catch a Falling Star, he ultimately rebounded and did the right thing. To a young, nerdy kid in suburban St. Louis, and no doubt to numerous others who saw Quantum Leap, Sam Beckett was a positive influence. I had the misfortune of growing up in a conservative small town where racism, sexism, homophobia, and other outdated mindsets were very commonplace. Quantum Leap dealt with all of these issues and helped me to realize that these regressive ideologies were wrong, and should be challenged and fought at every opportunity. Maybe it's silly to draw inspiration from a TV show, but I didn't think so at the time, and I honestly believe I'm a more well-rounded and humanistic person today, in a large part because of the lessons of so many Quantum Leap episodes. In a nutshell, Quantum Leap, to me, means always striving to do what's right and to oppose injustice and oppression, because, in all likelihood, Dr. Sam Beckett won't be able to do it for us. Thank you, David. Can he be my next Man Crush Monday? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) He's just so awesome. I agree with a lot of what he said, and I think that's one of the reasons that this show is very special to me and a lot of of us. I'm hearing a lot of common words 
most of the essays are very much the same as how you describe what this show means to you. Now, I mean, I'm watching this for the first time at 25, so it's not really as influential in my decisions as it would have been if I had seen it growing up. But mostly everybody watched it in their formative years, and it helps to make them a more moral and centered person, which is really, really awesome for a TV show to pull that off. Like, I I don't know if that was their intention when writing the show, but kudos to them to changing all of your lives. You know, look at how much better off you guys were because of this show. That's awesome. When you live in a world where you look around and a lot of people are, to use a nicer word, I guess, jerks. Yeah. And you see a show like this and you're, you say, okay, maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe it's okay to be nice. It's okay to not prejudge people. It's okay to be nice to everyone. In short, WWSBD. <laughs> well, I have tried to be a, a gentle parent in raising my daughter. And, and I hear a lot that we have to prepare our children for a harsh world. But aren't our children the next generation? So... Would, if you guys watched the show growing up and it affected you and made you better people, then maybe that is a clue that we should be, <laughs> I don't know, streaming the Quantum Leap in the schools. I don't right, know. <laughs> that's an idea. It should be a required course in high school, ah, middle school. If there are life lessons to be learned at a young age, these are it. And I don't know. I just think it's cool that everybody's essay is pretty similar in saying that growing up, This helps them be better people. And now we have an essay from Donnie. Quantum Leap has had a profound impact on my life like few other things have. I began watching the television show as a 12-year-old and it took hold of me. I admired Sam Beckett and the way he put right what once went wrong. He quickly became my hero and moral compass. While other kids dreamed of playing baseball or joining a rock band, I wanted to travel through time and make the world a better place. Every day after school, I watched reruns on USA or the Sci-Fi Channel. It soon became something my family and I bonded over. It was a show my parents and I could both enjoy. My sister, who never shared any interest with me, ever, used to recite the opening by memory. It also sparked a desire for reading. The first adult novel I ever read was the first Quantum Leap book. You couldn't imagine the joy I felt when my mom brought it home for me. Quantum Leap opened my eyes to a world I had never known. Growing up in Georgia, I rarely heard discussions on racial justice, equality for women, the plight of Native Americans, issues related to mental disability, and acceptance of the LGBT community. The show provided a platform for understanding these issues in an extremely personal way, because Sam experienced life through other people's eyes. Through Quantum Leap, I began to understand the importance of examining issues from someone else's perspective, and I believe the show fostered an empathy that I embrace as an adult. It has affected the way I interact with and treat people and hope that others have been moved in the same way. The show also impacted my professional life. I had always been interested in history, which is probably one of the reasons I was attracted to the show in the first place, but I had never before been exposed to the history of the second half of the 20th century. I found the people and places featured on the show each week to be fascinating, and it was hard to believe how different the world was in such a short period of time. This interest in the history of Sam's lifetime led to further readings on the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement, and electoral politics in the 1960s. Eventually, I studied these subjects in college and wrote my master's thesis on the intersection between the civil rights and anti-war movements in the 1960s Georgia. Today, 
I work for a university digitizing historical documents to be placed online, making history more accessible to the public. All that being said, it's just a damn entertaining television show, and I've had a lot of fun watching it over the years. I'm watching episodes again along with your podcast, and my wife told me last week that she thinks I'm happiest when I'm watching Quantum Leap. She's not far off. I'm looking forward to sharing the show with my kids in the future. I just hope they enjoy it as much as I do. How could they not? Thanks for the work that you do. Donnie. That was a really good essay. (laughs) Yes. What a way to finish up, right? Yeah. And what a cool job that he has. Do you realize that what Donnie does for a living quite possibly could be the historical information that Al and Ziggy are accessing through the handlink? Wow. Donnie, you're so much cooler now, aren't you? (laughs) He might be a part of Project Quantum Leap. Oh, way to go, buddy. Hopefully he doesn't have bad breath. (laughs) Oh, gushy. Oh, right. Gushy has bad breath. Another, Another essay about young adult impressionism. But that's awesome. It it turned out really well. And it's cool that your whole family could bond over that, Donnie. I hope that when Serenity watches this, because you know she has to watch it at some point in her life because of this podcast. I hope that she likes it too, because I really do like this show. It really, if not teaches you to be a better person, it reinforces your beliefs already to be a kind person, to be a better person towards others. And I think it affected my life as well, similarly, as in David and Donnie, where I help people. If I have a chance to, I help people to where I put others before myself. Anytime I see someone that I can help, I help. Um, (laughs) It can be a struggle at times, so I think I know what a little bit what Scott Bakula feels like when he's pulling up those cables after an 18-hour day of shooting. But, it, you know, it just, if you can help, why not help? Well, and I think, I don't know, I always think back to the Maya Angelou qu- quote that said, now that I know better, I do better. So I think that showing people how to make the world a better place can make them do better. It's awesome that as a society now, all of us have something we can look to to help us determine right from wrong. Yes. And how to live our lives. And uh, this is a great example. Both David and Donnie have comic books on their way. Probably have them in their hand by the time they're listening to this. <laughs> Probably. Um, so thank you so much. The next phase of our giveaway is to win that C. Winston Taylor signed comic book lithiograph art portfolio. It's really nice. It's huge and it's really cool. So uh, this is a cool prize. And everyone who has submitted an essay up to this point that isn't a part of the podcast crew is eligible to win the grand prize in the giveaway. So stay tuned for more details. The winner will be chosen by you. You can still submit essays, but that's it for the comic books. But they will be read on the show and we would still love to hear them. I would just like to take a second and wish Phil Doherty a happy birthday. We don't normally do that, but I just happened to know it was his birthday the other day. So happy birthday, Phil. And thank you so much to Tom Quinn. He sent us a very special delivery this week. We got Ellie badges. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Up. I Uh, love that movie. (laughs) It is a Disney Pixar film about um, a couple who falls in love. And if you watch the first 10 minutes or so, you'll be bawling your eyes out. It's very sad. But it's amazing. It's an amazing love story. And it it's a great, great movie. And there's a grape soda bottle cap pin that he wears that Ellie puts on him in the beginning of the movie. And 
we actually have our own Ellie badges now from Tom Quinn. He sent us three. Yes, and Serenity loves her. She had it on all day the first day we got them, and she just kept looking down. It was like, look what I have on me. She was so excited. And we had to watch Up that day. Yeah, and she she liked the movie. That was the first time I think we watched it with her. Yeah, she met everybody from Up, but I think that's the first time she saw the movie. And we met them before we saw the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hey, you, yeah, Up people. And then I saw the movie and I was like, we met them. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, great movie. And thank you so much, Tom. Yeah, that was really cool. Thank you so much. There are many ways to send feedback to the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can go to quantumleappodcast.com and find out all the ways. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. Please like our Facebook page and get involved in our Facebook community. And you can find us at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. We are on Twitter. We are at quantumleappod. We also have an Instagram account, Quantum Leap Podcast. Tag us in your Quantum Leap photos. Or you can call us at 707-847-6682, just like Phil did. And we want to hear from you. Heather, do you have any trivia? Um, yeah. Well, you know in the beginning, it's a different opening, obviously. Still freaks me out. Well, it was narrated by Lance LeGault. Hopefully I said that right. But that is the guy who narrated this opening. I think he did a good job. I just like Deborah Pratt a little bit better. And I didn't mind him at all. I think it was just different. And I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> and remember you mentioned that the little suburban town looked a little like poltergeist? It did, like eerily similar. The opening aerial shots of the neighborhood are actually the same shots that were used in the opening of Poltergeist. Really? Uh, that's what it says, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cool. Maybe that's why it looked similar to my brain. That's probably why. Maybe I was like, hmm, that looks like Poltergeist. Because it was. How crazy is that? Go me for kind of figuring that out without knowing it. <laughs> yeah. When Susan was watching Magnum P.I. Yes. Well, Susan was watching Magnum P.I. on Wednesday, September 30th, 1981. However, Magnum P.I.'s second season first aired on Thursday, October 8th, 1981. So there were a couple months off if she was, in fact, watching the second season. 81? Yeah, she might have had it on. No, it wasn't released on home video. Did they do reruns? Hmm. If only they had someone around who was involved in the production of Magnum P.I., they would know <laughs> when it aired. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it it was only a month off. Yeah, that's not so bad. But it was nice to see Magnum P.I. It almost made me want to watch that episode. Throughout the whole series, we never find out if Al goes back to Teresa. That's, that kind of makes me sad. I kind of, can I talk about that for a little bit? Of course. Martin left us a Facebook comment with a link to an article about the eight sad truths you realize when you rewatch Quantum Leap. And the article is by Kelly Conda, and he mentions number five. And let me read that to you. Al totally Amy Ponded a poor little girl, except even worse. In the Doctor Who episode, The Eleventh Hour, the Doctor encounters an adorable little Scottish girl named Amelia Pond. He promises to take her to the stars and on an adventure, but when he fails to return, she has to go through years of therapy as no one believed her tale of a raggedy doctor who literally fell from the sky. The thing here is that, crucially, the doctor did eventually come back, and he never intentionally misled poor Amelia. He just really sucks at getting time coordinates right. You remember that episode? I do. Love that episode. The raggedy doctor. <sighs> 
Amy Bond. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So what then do we make of the final scene from the season two episode of Quantum Leap, Another Mother? By this point, the only thing preventing Sam from leaping is Al's need to say goodbye to the adorable daughter of the woman Sam leapt into. Falling into that kid mentally challenged animal spectrum of people who can actually see Al other than Sam, the girl had grown attached to Al and him to her. What proceeds is a genuinely sweet scene between a young child actress who mostly flashes her big white eyes at Stockwell as he promises to come back to see her again real soon. Liar. Al can't go back. He's not really a time traveler who can just go anywhere he wants. He is linked to Sam's brain and can only go into a place and time where Sam is present. Unless Sam leaps back into the family with the little girl, Al has no way of following through on his promise. That poor little girl probably had years of therapy after that, refusing to back down from her claims of a strange imaginary man from the future who is going to come back and see her any minute now. Just you wait and see. That is crazy. I didn't make that connection. But now I feel so much worse for Teresa. (laughs) Right? I'm serious because Amy Pond had so many problems because of that. Everybody made fun of her because she believed it because it actually happened. But nobody else believed it. Except Rory. Oh, Rory. (laughs) Poor Rory. The boy who waited. Uh, Okay. Enough about Doctor Who. Um, Really? I know there's really not ever enough about (laughs) Doctor Who. Okay. Uh, If you haven't watched it, start at the episode Rose. That's all I'm saying. Uh, Rose. Okay, anyway, <laughs> the the part that is even worse for Teresa is, so these two guys came and my mom left and they had to help my brother. So I hung out with this hologram named Al or this angel named Al and this man who was supposed to be my mom. But the whole story is so bogus that like they would lock her up. The dwarf therapist, was it? What's a dwarf? <laughs> Many ramifications of this leap. That's why I don't understand why Al said that. Unless Al knows who she is and knows her in the future. Maybe she's the LED earrings chick in the first episode. That would be kind of creepy. I don't know. <laughs> That'd be weird. Uh, I, don't I, don't know. Know. I don't know. <laughs> okay, but thank you, Martin, for uh, that link to that article. And uh, it was really appropriate for this episode. And I wouldn't have thought of it without that. Anytime we can link Quantum Leap to Doctor Who, is it's a good article. Two shows with handsome men and time traveling. And righting wrongs and saving the day. Maybe that's why I like both shows. I might be in the time travel. Maybe. Any more trivia? Well, there's some little continuity errors. Okay, I like those. Also, when Sam is attacking the kidnappers, one of them pulls a knife and he's on his right knee and then... They go to the next shot and he's on his left knee. A little bit of a continuity error. Uh, That part of the episode, it has one of my favorite lines from Al in this episode. He says, well, I just laughed out loud when he said it. He said, Sam, watch out. It's a knife. It might be sharp. (laughs) Yes, it's sharp. It's a knife. Look at it. It might be sharp. It might be sharp. Because if it was dull, it wouldn't hurt when it stabs you. Yeah. I don't know. But I just found that funny. Every time I just chuckled. Yeah, I think the other continuity error in that scene is his blouse is either tucked in or not. Depending oh, on really? Shot. I didn't see that. Guess what? I'm watching again. <laughs> oh, and uh, Kevin has like bruises and a black eye in the van. And then the next morning, he's not as banged up, I guess. Maybe they weren't bruises. Maybe the kidnappers just applied makeup to look like he had bruises because that was what they were into. Well, they could have been dirt. Okay. And we have yet another Twilight Zone reference. 
when Kevin parodies Rod Serling's intro, you see a signpost up ahead. And in a portrait for Troyan, Sam says to Mrs. Stoltz that she probably watches The Twilight Zone. Yeah, that was very Twilight Zone-ish episode anyway. There's a lot of Twilight Zone connections in Quantum Leap. Something to look for. Well, also in this episode, there was a lot of Star Wars references and Raiders of the Lost Ark. A lot of cool stuff. So what do you think, Heather? Oh, no, not again. I'm sorry. I just really value your opinion. Uh, sorry, uh, babe, whatever you say. Babe? So you think I'm sexy? I think we'd better talk. Not now. Well, hopefully soon then. Are you okay? Get rid of this creep for a few minutes, will you? Sorry, uh, I'm not feeling very well at the moment. Can you give me a cup of tea, please? Uh, sure. I'll get you an aspirin, too, for your headache. I don't have a headache. I'll remember that tonight. Now I feel sick, too. Serenity, you're not supposed to interrupt us while we're recording. You know that. Where's your mommy? She's right here. That's not your mommy. That's a man. So is Harry Potter, but he got fat? Oh, great. Looks like the podcast is still haunted from the ghost we had on the show a couple of weeks ago. Don't worry about them. You're very clever, aren't you, Serenity? This is John Weasley, and I'm Hayden Potter. And you're right, we're wizards. Would you like to see some magic? Weren't you getting me a cup of tea? Oh, okay. Okay, okay. I'm going. Okay, I'll apparate to the other side of the room. Serenity, come over here. See us in the mirror? Well, that's why your daddy thinks I'm your mommy. We, uh, we we cast a spell. And now for a little while, everyone's gonna think I'm your mommy. Um, oh, to help your daddy. Uh, to teach him how to make a good cup of tea. He always messes it up. Now the trick is to leave the tea bag in the cup. Then it gets stronger as you drink it. Actually, Serenity, do you think you could go and tell Daddy that for me, please? Happy. All right. Why am I really here, Hayden? Well, this podcast you're recording right now is the last one that's ever made. Wait, what? I got sent here to save the podcast? Yeah, apparently it's really good. If it's so good, why'd they stop making it? Well, Albie, that's your husband, thinks the podcast is haunted and got so freaked out that he never wanted to make another one. Oh boy. Hayden, do you realize that we're the ones who caused that? Oh, you'd better go talk to him then. What about the recording? I'll hold down the fort. Ziggy says that everyone who listens is mental enough to hear me anyway. I wonder if I can play my theme music through the handlink. Another Mother is a perfect example of real-life writing the script. 
Deborah Pratt has stated on numerous occasions that she wrote this episode specifically for the purpose of having her daughter, Troy and Belisario, star in the episode and learn how TV is made. At the time, she'd been asking a lot of questions, asking what do Mummy and Daddy do? This, however, presented a small problem. It would have been too difficult for a small child like Troyan to pretend that Dean Stockwell, whose character Al was invisible to everyone but Sam, wasn't there. So Deborah wrote it into the script that children under the age of five live in a natural alpha state and only ever see, hear and speak the truth. The logic behind small children living in an alpha state makes perfect sense and is not even an idea that is exclusive to Quantum Leap. In Ghost Whisperer, for example, it's established that the invisible friends of small children are actually ghosts, and that they can be seen for the exact same reason as in Quantum Leap. Because of their innocence, they see everything. This expansion of the Quantum Leap universe is permanent, and is used several more times throughout the series. Most of the time, it's to assist Al if he needs to communicate with someone. He pretends to be an angel and asks small children to tell the adults what he needs them to know. Al has also been known to provide emotional support to children who are finding life tough. But Al being able to be heard has also gotten Sam in trouble. In one instance, when the daughter of his host overhears something that was for Sam's ears only, she tells her mother, In a crowning moment of funny, Sam has to try and calm his host's wife down by reminding her that the daughter heard it from his own invisible friend. The fact that small children, and without being too spoilery, some others, can see Sam and Al, is also incontrovertible proof that 1. It is definitely Sam's body that is leaping, and he's just surrounded by an aura of the leapee that those who only see the truth don't get fooled by, and 2 that Al's image is not just projected into Sam's mind, but it's actually projected into the past, kind of like television waves. And Sam, small children, and some others are just tuned into that particular frequency. The hologram around me is fading. John must be leaping. Serenity, I promise I'll come back one day and we'll have tea! I was wondering if Mr. Belisario ever thought about having Sam leap into a Star Trek episode. I never thought of him leaping into a Star Trek episode. What I wanted to do, I wanted to leap him into a Magnum episode. (laughs) I wanted him to look into a mirror and see Tom Selleck looking back. But I couldn't do the eyebrow thing back, so it was, it was like... But U- Universal uh, would not give permission to do that. <laughs> Actually, Tom wouldn't give permission, but... <laughs> I'll couch it that way. <laughs> this is great tea that you made, Albie. It's just what I needed after what happened. How did you get the idea to keep the tea bag in it? It's getting stronger as I drink it. It's pretty cool. 
Actually, Serenity told me to do it. Really? Yeah, and uh, she had me make an extra cup for her new friend, Hayden the Wizard. Wait, what happened? Oh, I just got abducted by aliens. You know, no big deal. Hayden's a wizard? Apparently. So, wait, we've got ghosts, wizards, and aliens joining us for this podcast now? Well, I guess our radio signal has actually reached that far into space. I'm glad you convinced me there has to be a logical explanation for everything, because I was really freaking out. How could I have done that from a spaceship? Next time on the Quantum Leap Podcast, Sam is trying to win a college football scholarship while trying to prevent his illegal alien mother from being deported. Wait, there's more aliens? They're gonna kill me! They're still Mike. Oh boy. Say something to me in Spanish. Uh, tu casa o mi casa. My place or yours? Mm. Al, what happens to Eddie? What happens to me in 62? Uh, let's see, you, um... Oh, well, you get a football scholarship to UCLA, which will make your father puff out his chest another four inches three days after his mother waded across the Rio Grande. Three days? Yeah. She sneaked across the border nine months pregnant? Half the schools in this country gotta be after him. They are. Oh, no. What, he gets hurt? No. He throws the game. Your English is getting very good, but you're still having trouble with definitions. To rent means to pay for the use of. And you haven't rented for three months. All you've done is use. You owe me 800 bucks. I want you to stay away from Julian as well. I don't think I heard you, punk. I'll write it down if you can read. So there definitely will be another episode of the podcast, right? Because, wait, why am I worried about that? Yes, there definitely will be. Sounds like you've been in the waiting room absorbing the Leaper's memories. (laughs) (laughs) Wait. Wait. What? Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. Go to quantumleappodcast.com and listen to new episodes. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal TV. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get behind-the-scenes information, exclusive content, and to be notified first when new episodes are available. To support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash quantumleappodcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, Baron Space Productions, its partners, or affiliates. Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, John Buchanan, and Juan. Researched by Juan. Contributors Hayden McQueenie and Jill Arroway. Voice talent provided by John Buchanan, Tony Fennerin, and Juan. The co-producer for the Quantum Leap Podcast is Hayden McQueenie, and Juan is the line producer. The Quantum Leap Universe and all it contains is property of Belisarius Productions and Universal TV. No infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a barren space production. Yeah, and I like the little things in the background sometimes. Like when they're out playing ping pong. You- ping pong? <laughs> uh, he's not in the show. <laughs> Like in the beginning of the episode where he was impersonating yoga and Yoda. (laughs) It's September 30th, 1981, and Sam has leaped into Lisa Bruckner. Wow. I have some serious issues.
It's September 30th, 1981, and Sam has leaped into, leapt in, leaped into, right? Leapt into, leaped into. It's September 30th, 1981, and Sam has leapt into, it's September 30th, 1981, and Sam has leapt into, why do I want to say Lisa? (laughs) Steven Spielberg keeps killing dinosaurs. Uh. He then apologizes to Sam and tells him he knows that the divorce has... Wow, it's going to be rough. Sam is doubtful at first, but smiles as Teresa correctly names a Tyrannosaurus Rex, a Stegosaurus, and a Diplodocus. (laughs) But smiles as Teresa correctly names a Tri... I can't even correctly name them. And I think it affected my life a lot as well, uh, similarly... Similarly. Similarly. No. Similarly. 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 Oh, I had it. I'll get that one. (laughs) By this point, the only thing preventing Sam from reaching. uh, By this point, the only thing from. uh, You did really good reading that. Thank you. I don't know why. You could say apparently. or or, No, sorry. (laughs) Just leave my dumbness in there. Okay, if you want me to. Secular undercourse. No pizza for you.